Hey folks, I'm John Walker. I'm John Ulis. And you're listening to Nine Secret Eps, the podcast where we discuss the music of They Might Be Giants. And this is our second bonus ep. So this is like, a, I guess when we say bonus ep, we just mean an episode that kind of breaks the format of the show. We won't be taking a topic and talking to a guest about all their picks and, and talking about our picks. This is much more just a, a conversation about uh, the band They Might Be Giants. Yeah, but to be very clear, this is not one of the nine secret apps. It is a bonus app. Yes. But it's a very special bonus app today, I, I would say. Are the bonus apps therefore not secret? Huh. Are they somehow more public? I think they're they're still secret. They're just not numbered. Maybe they're lettered. Maybe this is 4A. I don't know. That, that gets hairy. Yeah, we don't need to overcomplicate it. This episode has enough going on already because what we've got are a handful of conversations with people who who each have their own perspective and and had a, a particularly a, a unique window onto the early days of they might be giants and that's kind of the subject of this episode that period where they went from an indie band to a band on a major label and when they went from a duo to a full band and each of our guests has their own way of looking at that progress uh, first We've got Bo Orloff, who uh, worked uh, for the Might Be Giants management company, Hornblow, and was heavily involved, wore a lot of hats for the band. Then we've got Ira Robbins, a renowned music critic, who who was definitely an early supporter of They Might Be Giants. And we also have Sue Drew, the A&R person uh, for Electra Records, who brought They Might Be Giants in as her first signing. So I don't know. I think this was a big time for all the people that we are mentioning. But definitely for this band, it's a, it's a, it's a period that... That looms large. Yeah, it's true. This was um, definitely the most important time in the band's history up to that point. It was their, uh, you know, really when they were first getting recognized overseas and, you know, had a hit with Birdhouse on Elektra. Uh, and then uh, they, they made some great albums on that label and then never went to a major label again. <laughs> I guess that's true. You know, and Flood is still their most successful album. And though they've had a lot of success since then, I do think that that album and that label was a huge platform for them. It kind of expanded their reach at a time when, when a lot of people seem to think they were one of the most exciting bands around. But let's get to our conversation with Bo, or more accurately, my conversation with Bo. You won't hear Ulysses because he was not on the call. I actually spoke to Bo before we had the uh, structure of this show worked out. So I was just happy to get Bo talking about his time with They Might Be Giants and, and his insight into that. So yes, you won't hear Ulysses, but you will hear me. And most importantly, you will hear Bo. Here's Bo. I did so many different things in, uh, for the Giants and the other bands that we worked with, um, you know, that I, I can't count them all. I, uh, <laughs> a, a, a brief weird aside is you prob maybe you know that the guy at the Frauenhofer Institute, the scientist, the audiologist or whatever you call them, who developed the MP3 algorithm, Mm -hmm. used used the song um, Tom's Diner by Suzanne Vega as his test song and so uh, people use some people used to say oh well the more your the more your music sounds like Tom's Diner the better it will come out as an mp3 <laughs> so i don't know but the, but then there's vague connections between that in my mind and they might be giants and such are that well one that Suzanne Vega and the, the Johns you know were were somewhat friendly I don't know how close or whatever but I remember seeing her at there there was a club in the uh 
first floor of the building where John Linnell lived in Brooklyn that was called Quiet Life. Mm -hmm. It was a former funeral home. Oh, wow. It was an, you know, like not an all the time club and not a, no, didn't have a real liquor license club. But I remember seeing her at, 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 at a show there. Maybe, maybe Brian Dewan was performing, but I wouldn't swear to that. I'm guessing you might know Brian Dewan. Yes, yeah, so all these names are familiar to me. I mean, definitely in a similar way uh, that yours is. Like I remember reading your name, I mean, mm -hmm. back when, you know, it was that time for in my life in particular of being into a band and like looking at liner notes right. and newsletters like they were some kind of sacred document. Oh, oh man, I can, I remember that. And so anyone that was sort of in the orbit or if like John Linnell plays accordion on a Suzanne Vega song, I was like, I knew about that Suzanne Vega connection. If she thanked right. them in the liner notes, I was like, oh cool, they, they got mentioned. So I was like on the lookout for names associated with the band. So yeah, all, all of that, th those all sound like... Uh, um, like all stars to me when it comes to they might be giants connections. Right. Well, the so so okay. So the the other slightly weird connection there is that um, uh, I, well to to back up a little and you know how I got involved with the giants was through um, Jamie Kitman, their manager, who's my like oldest friend. We've known each mm -hmm. other since kindergarten, um, and then Bill Krause was uh, was. Uh, you know, lived lived in Bill Krause and Jamie Kipman and I all lived in an apartment together in New York in the the seventies, mid mid to late seventies, I guess the late seventies. Um, and Jamie and I both worked at that time part time at a deli in the neighborhood that was on that was like two doors up from Tom's Restaurant, which is the actual name of Tom's Diner, which is the where what. The place Suzanne Baker wrote the song about, which is also the place where the exterior shots of the restaurant that Seinfeld hangs out mm -hmm. in are shot. You know, I wondered if that was the same time. It is. It is. Yeah. And I actually, you you bringing it back around to her, her song did remind me of something I had wanted to say, which was if that song was a song that like the algorithm decided it worked well, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I also, in a weird way, that reminds me of how. Um, uh, John and John have talked about when they were mixing songs for Dial-A-Song, they had to make mm -hmm. sure that it was arrangements and mixes that would sound good over a phone line and that right. wouldn't like have beeps that would trick the phone and the phone machine into thinking it was the beep. So it's like, it's interesting to think of, again, it's like a, a weird technological restraint or, a, a you know, some, some quality music is trying to achieve in order to be like more technologically viable. That's another, that's right. just made me think of that. Yeah. No, that's not to get, well, and in the early days, I don't, I'm I'm like kind of an ant, sort of an anti audiophile in my personal life. You know, I love music, but I'm not I'm not somebody who ever really talks about like oh those speakers sound crappy and or wants to go spend five thousand dollars on you know something that to make the to make things sound more perfect. I'm right. you know I have I have you know okay stuff, but not <laughs> but I'm just not that audiophile oriented and and. I mean, as musicians wanting to be professional musicians, I'm sure that the Giants, John and John, were much more, you know, focused on making things sound good. But they weren't obsessed with it. And like you said, they were they were able to switch gears and go, wait, we're not trying to make this sound as good as possible. We're trying to make it sound right on a, over a telephone line. Right. And those early days also the fact that they were playing with backing tapes rather than a band mm. was, you know, a big deal from an, from a, from an audio point of view, <laughs> you know, uh, they did. I know Bill Krauss spent a lot of time in the early days 
trying to improve the sound of the backing tapes, or I'm sure with in conjunction with with John and John. But you know, they wanted it. Um, they wanted when they played live, they didn't want people to be saying like, "Oh, you know, this this sucks because they don't have a band," which which of course a lot of people said anyway. But well, you almost <laughs> want though the fans of that band are the people that are going to say this this rocks because they don't have a band. You know, like yeah. this this excites me because they don't like. I was I came in. I was I was from uh, well, I, I am still, but at the time I was in Alabama, so and I was uh, I was like fourteen when I first saw them on MTV. So I was not quite wow. of an age mm-hmm. to experience some of the early early days. Right. But I did go to see them on um, the occasion of I believe it was a duo tour. I think it was the last duo tour they did before mm-hmm. the Apollo eighteen tour in in earnest kicked in. No, that's right. It was like right after the album came out. Mm-hmm. I saw them in Athens, Georgia, and it was a duo show, and it was the only time I've seen that. And mm-hmm. I still remember how energetic it was, and I still remember how, like, you know, Linnell with the accordion and Flansburg mm-hmm. with the guitar. I mean, they did switch to other things, but it felt more, it had more of like a punk art mm-hmm. rock. What what made me think, okay, even though this was deep into their career, so to speak, it made me feel like, okay, I got to experience a tiny flavor of those early days um, right. of of, again, them coming almost from the... Uh, they were the they were the the pop band amongst the performance artists. That's right. That's right. I was just going to say something along those lines. Yeah, they were they were operating in a milieu where um, probably a lot of the people, you know, were were people who not like they didn't like rock music, but they weren't typical rock music fans, and they weren't you know they weren't looking for the the big rock show experience at at various you know arty. Uh, clubs on the Lower East Side, you know, it, it, it just, it wouldn't even have been, you know, it wouldn't have made sense in that, in that environment. Right. And there was, a, there was always in those very early days, I, I moved to New York and went to work with Jamie and the Giants in uh, August of 89. So I had, I had met them when they had played in California before that. And I had heard their stuff in, in probably, probably like Sometime in 1984, I think Bill Krauss came to visit me in in California with with tapes in hand and said, "Oh, I'm working with this new band that's got this, you know, this weird name. You're going to think this is the weirdest name. They're called They Might Be Giants." <laughs> I don't think it's easy to recapture how weird that sounded in in 1984 as a band name. Mm-hmm. I think they were kind of the spearhead of the movement of bands having names like like when people were shorter and lived near the water and bands like band names like that <laughs> came after they might be giants and i remember a lot of people kind of going you know they might be giants that's what a weird name and we'll be hearing more from Bo throughout this episode but it's a good time to turn our attention to our remaining luminaries and bring them into the fold namely ira robbins and sue drew Now, Ira Robbins is a music critic and author who founded the Trouser Press in 1974, uh, started out as a zine and later became a regular magazine. And then it was a couple of books and now it's a website, but it's basically just a venue for a certain kind of uncompromising, witty music criticism that Ira writes and champions. And I saw his name on a bunch of reviews in magazines that I read when I was a kid. One of the first things I would do would be to flip to the record reviews because there weren't a lot of other places to get recommendations when I was a kid. So yeah, I would see the name Ira Robbins on a review that would either be something I hadn't heard of that it would maybe be worth checking out or 
even more flattering to my sensibilities <laughs> would be when when he would write a nice review of something I liked, uh, like They Might Be Giants. So yeah, I, I've always liked Ira's writing, and um, it was a great honor to have him on the show. And I want to say, John, you had a personal connection that really kind of led to us getting him. Yeah, as you may know, I'm a web developer, and I heard there was a local veteran rock music journalist looking for a website redesign a couple of years ago. And it turns out that Ira Robbins happens to live down the block from me. <laughs> uh, so a great connection was made there. And I helped him recreate the trouserpress.com website, which uh, has been in existence for about two decades, but was kind of falling apart at the seams. It, it hadn't really been updated in almost two decades, but uh, it's back and better than ever. And Ira, I, I knew was They Might Be Giants fan. I've read what he's written about the band on his website. And, uh, you know, he's also reviewed Flood and Spin Magazine and Apollo 18 and Rolling Stone. So very well spoken about the band, and he was happy to come on here and talk about them. And after Ira, you'll hear the voice of Sue Drew, the A&R executive who signed They Might Be Giants to their career-changing deal with Electra Records and helped facilitate the making of the beloved albums Flood and Apollo 18. You all have probably heard of those. I was really interested when talking to Sue in getting at what an A&R person does. I've heard that phrase, artist and repertoire, my whole life, I guess, but I never really thought about how that person has to be or can be just as passionate as the band in terms of finding out like what's the best way for this band to navigate the commercial concerns that a label wants to deal with, but also the uh, artistic concerns of like where this artist should be. So uh, anyway, talking to Sue was a lot of fun. And this is actually an excerpt from a longer conversation that will be a full episode of my other music podcast, Playing Records with John, uh, very soon, that deals with Sue's whole career. But I thought the They Might Be Giants related portion of that really should be best heard here, where, where people might be most interested in it. <laughs> you may have seen Sue Drew in Gigantic, A Tale of Two Johns, the documentary that came out about two decades ago. Uh, I believe she refers to They Might Be Giants as the vanguards of alternative rock in that film. And without any further ado, here's Ira and Sue. Enjoy. I've had debates with some friends who work in music about like criticism of music and like what value it has and why would you listen to someone else's opinion. And I've always tried to say that it's not about like co-opting an opinion, but it is interesting that role that a critic plays for a fan. And I was thinking about this before this conversation and thinking like, is there a difference between a, a critic and a fan? I mean, you must have gotten started, uh, Trouser Prescott started as almost like a zine. So you must have been a big fan. But like, where does that line, where is that line for you? And is there a line and you know, between being like an enthusiast and a booster and somebody who says, well, if I'm going to write about this thing, I also have to be honest and say, I didn't like this about it or, or whatever. I can say a variety of things about that. One is um, that I, I just recently published the first the, the volume of, of a memoir in which I discussed that very question at some length. Um, because on one hand, you know, there was definitely a point at which I morphed from being a kind of a proselytic fan uh, as a writer. Like, it was like, I found this thing, I really love it, I got to tell you about why it's so great, you should love it too, to somebody who understood a responsibility as a journalist to an audience that um, wasn't necessarily only there for the hype. You know, that like, that it was important to, to, to be serious about this stuff. And I, you know, at some point 
early on in the days of trousers. I had actually started writing a little bit before trousers press started um, for my college paper and then for um, a magazine called Zoo World. Uh, and I, I developed kind of a, well, I have kind of a surly attitude to begin with. I mean, I, like, I don't know, I've discussed this with my therapist at, at, for years, but not quite sure where it comes from. But my dad was a real hard case and uh, um, never gave any, any compliments that weren't really earned. And so I think I ingested some of that. And, you know, music, when I was first starting out in this world, which was in the 70s, um, I mean, I'd been a fan since the 60s, but I became a, a writer in the 70s. Music for me became very personal. And, you know, the music that I loved was like Godhead. You know, it, like, it, was, it was like life-affirming and, you know, enormously important to me. And the music that I hated was like physically repulsive. You know, I mean, like, you know, stuff that I didn't like would just make me, you know, run out of the room or like stick my fingers in my ears or just growl. Um, and so I, I, I think I was pretty well equipped to be a critic because, you know, I certainly didn't have a Pollyanna view of anything. You know, I mean, I liked what I liked, but I also hated what I hated. Um, and so somewhere in there, you know, I understood the, the role of a critic and I became very serious about it. And, you know, I, I guess the, the litmus test was I started reviewing concerts for the New York Post in the 80s. And the litmus test for me was that I stopped enjoying going to concerts. You know, that like concerts became work because I was always thinking critically while I was at concerts. And I still do. You know, I, I was at Newsday for a bunch of years and, and, and did hundreds of concert reviews there. And so it became kind of um, a reflex, you know, where, you know, you, you're there at the concert, but you're also observing it independently. Kind of, it's, it's like the, the end of the superego. You know, I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm feeling something, but at the same time, I'm thinking about why I'm feeling it. And that takes all the fun out of it, basically. <laughs> There was a local uh, news weekly uh, when I in my hometown of Birmingham, Alabama, that I wrote. You know, I got like ten bucks a review, and I got to rummage through the promos that they got. So like that was it. But and I think sometimes I did pick something up, kind of knowing I wouldn't like it, and sort of thinking I might take pleasure in writing like a three paragraph, uh, you know, takedown of something, but never too much. I don't think I ever was that insincere or glib about what I was writing, but it was very much like three paragraphs. Very the writing style itself was glib. But I remember thinking at some point when I started doing a little bit more music on my own, there's no reason to write about a band no one's heard of that sucks hmm. but if it's a band everybody's talking about and they suck then that that has more substance to it you know and it, i don't know it felt less like shooting fish in a barrel there's a sliding scale i guess you know and, and it works both ways i mean on one hand you know it's not you're right there's not not much real benefit in telling people how terrible a record is that they're never going to hear at the same time you know that you don't want to translate that into a knee-jerk reaction to successful records that they all suck you know right. i mean it's it's it become, you know, I mean, I guess I've always been, you know, sort of an underground critic in the sense that I've championed bands that most people haven't heard of. Um, and I've largely attacked bands that people have heard of um, and artists. But um, but I would say that that. Um, what I sort of set myself up as, at least in terms of like independent music, um, was that I would try to review everything that came across my desk, you know, and so. I didn't feel bad if I slagged something off if it was shit because I had just finished writing something favorable about something that, that was equally obscure, um, but that really tickled my fancy. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, 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 like I said, I've, I've grappled with this a lot in, in my later years of thinking about, you know, what it means to be really negative about, you know, a, a piece of music. On the other hand, you know, in a way that's kind of where I built my reputation as a critic by being 
sort of a mixture of like brutally honest and like vindictively mean, you know, and, and, and the, 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 the two could be the same thing at some points. And, and sometimes they can be completely unrelated. I mean, somebody like Sting or, you know, Perry Farrell or, or uh, um, Bruce Springsteen just really pissed me off, you know, and it's just kind of like, um, and I've written about them, you know, and why they piss me off and what about the, the, what they do that pisses me off. And, and, and you know, it, like I said, I think I take this to a person I don't as much as I used to. Um, I mean, I've been to a million concerts that I went to expecting to hate them, um, you know, for work, you know, like, but I always consider it a worthwhile experience because you're adding to your knowledge and your, your awareness and you're, you know, you're, you're putting a reality to a concept. You know, you're saying, like, I've gone to shows, my bands that I didn't think I'd like, and go like, well, I, you know, I don't like their records, but then I'll go see them. It's like, oh, you know, their drummer's really good, you know, or something like that. Um, but records, you know, I mean, I can play records for enjoyment, you know, but, like, because I like, I know I like them. You know, records have the benefit of being familiar. You know, concerts are unique. Well, up to a point. Um, <laughs> as I've written somewhere, you know, I, I was completely heartbroken when I was a kid to see the Rolling Stones, like, on consecutive nights and discover that they put on the exact same show down to, like, the ad-libs. And that really, that, that was one of those realizations, like, when I was, like, 10 and discovered that radio stations were not having artists perform live in the studio, that they were actually playing records. That kind of bummed me out also. I think people really appreciate the fact that you... Um... You put all your cards on the table in reviews. You you know you're not afraid to put down a bigger artist. You're not afraid uh, afraid to speak your mind, and and it makes it so that when you do write a positive review about you know a band or an album, someone appreciates it means all the more to people. Um, I've seen threads in the in the trouser press forum where you know people are discussing times where you've uh, you know put down something, but it, you know it's always funnier and good jest. No no one's ever upset about it, and uh, yeah. you usually have a good reason to do it. I hope so. I mean, you know, I, I guess you could really sit down and do an analysis of the things that I've liked and the things that I've hated and sort of try to, to find, you know, overlap where I've essentially liked things for the same reason that I've hated things. Mm-hmm. You know? But, you know, that, that, that's one of the problems of having, you know, I don't know, I've written, you know, a bunch of millions of words over my, you know, over a 50 year writing career. So, um, you know, consistency is not something that I've spent a huge amount of time uh policing so you know i'm just kind of going on my gut so you know if i've made mistakes like that they're probably there and someone has nothing else to do with their life i suppose they could find them but i don't really care about it when i follow a critic i it's all about trusting that person's taste the way you sometimes have to trust your own taste and your name to me when i was a kid reading reviews was that name that i would say oh yeah ira robbins he likes some of the bands i like or he's turned me on to a band or two you know the thing under the hood that people who aren't critics probably don't realize is that hopefully it's not taste it's values that are consistent you know like like I don't like, I wouldn't like to think that, you know, you know, certainly, yes, you can name, you know, 50 bands that I've, I've been, I've been, you know, positive about 50 bands I've been negative about and call that my taste. But, but in, a, in under the hood, you know, the thinking that goes into that for me has always been con- what I try to keep up as a consistent set of, set of values for what it is that I think makes for good quality music, you know, what, music that people should hear that, that, that deserves to be heard. Um, you know, and those kind of values are like, you know, imagination and originality and, you know, and, and uh, you know, commitment and, and integrity and, and uh, intensity and, you know, things like that, you know, which are not the same thing as taste, you know, I mean, because because they can be um, exemplified in, you know, in a thousand different formats, you know, I mean, I can feel I, I can judge a singer, you know, an acoustic singer songwriter in the same way that I can judge a heavy metal band, you know, I mean, because I have my values about them are consistent. Yeah. 
That's a good distinction. Yeah, I'm really precious about this shit. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's about words. I mean, this is what you do. And in fact, music is famously the thing that's hard to write about. It's interesting that you talk about values or like the integrity of the stuff. Like you don't have to be an aficionado to know that something is engaging. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, my process as a journalist is always, as a critic, has always been to have a, a unconsidered emotional response. Like, oh my God, this is great. And then think about why I feel that and then try to match that up with the values that I have <clears throat> about music and see how it fits into them, if it, if it adjusts them, if it requires some, you know, big asterisk that says, I like this, this, and this, except I also like that, you know? So it's, it's kind of a, you know, it's a pretty complicated, well, at least it feels like in my head process um, that, you know, that is pretty invisible to readers. And, you know, that's why when people go, you know, oh my God, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Who needs the critics? They're just a bunch of assholes who can't play in a band. You know, it's like, oh, that shit's just like, I, I will go after you with a baseball bat if you say that to me, you know? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I I have literally spent 50 years not doing that. Yeah. You know, and to have it denigrated into those terms by people who have never given it more than, you wrote something negative about a record I like, you know, kind yeah. of consideration is really aggravating. Well, you know, it's funny, I, I see that with movie reviews too, and I see a lot of people who otherwise I think are sensible people say things like, I'd like to see that guy make a movie. And it's like, no, that's not the point. That's not his job. He's not trying to right. make a movie. <laughs> and plus, I've been in dance, so fuck you, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you can walk the walk and talk the talk. Yeah. It's putting me in mind of a, of a phrase I know a lot of people don't like, and that's uh, guilty pleasure. Um, and I know people don't feel guilty about what they like. But to me, it's it's a useful shorthand for those things that, like you said, they, they sort of surprise you by not fitting your values that you thought you had uh, about music, but you still like it. Or it doesn't, doesn't fit your friend's sensibilities either. Yeah, right. You know? Exactly. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, you know, one of the things that I've grappled with over my life is, is the idea of liking garbage. You know, I mean, why, why, how do I fit together, you know, my affection for, say, the queers? with, you know, my affection for, say, King Crimson, you know? So, like, you know, I mean, like, mm -hmm. you know, the question of, like, okay, it's in bad taste, it's really simple, um, you know, they're not really original because they basically sound like the Ramones, um, but on the other hand, they're one of my favorite bands, and I, you know, I, I love their records, so, you know, I'm not really sure how to explain that other than it's just good fun, you know? And, yeah. And, you know that that's a kind of a that's kind of a, a, a canyon that you can kind of fall into the the stuff that you like that isn't really easy to explain because it's not particularly distinguished. You know, certainly some you know like like the AM hit records that I grew up listening to. You know, some of them I can say are really high quality music. I mean, you know, some of them are just rubbish. You know, but on the other hand, there's a lot of rubbish that I really dislike. You know, I mean, I I mean, I'm exactly of the generation to find the monkeys offensive. You know, so, um, you know, because they, the monkeys were like, you know, the, the, the prefab four, right? I mean, that was the, that was the, the, the gimmick, you know, and, and so, and they didn't play their own instruments. They didn't write their own songs. So, you know, for all those reasons, you know, when the monkeys popped up in like 1966, it was like, oh my God, this is awful. You know, but at the same time, I certainly liked some of the songs, but, but, you know, like, you know, that's sort of one of those divides where you kind of, you know, it's hard to say what's wrong with the monkeys now, right? You know, from 50 years later, it's like monkeys really, you know, they, they weren't very different from any other band in 1966. You know, if you didn't know how they came to be, but then I don't really like the Archie. So, you know, how do you fit those two together? 
Right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really the stuff that's not, it's not proudly, you know, you know, distinguished that you kind of, that, that I worry about, you know, but, but, you know, some, some things I just like, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I can write about them enthusiastically and, and I, yeah, you're right. They don't really fit into my value system um, unless I readjust my value system. But, you know, um, I'd like to think that, that those are the outliers. We contain multitudes, right? That's a nice cop-out phrase. Something like that. <laughs> but yeah, I've, I've never felt guilty about anything. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, I even like, you know, I like the hook of uh, we built this city on rock and roll, you know, and I mean, it's a bad, <laughs> it's a bad record, no question about it, but, but I enjoy listening to it, you know, and I mean, I, and I, I think Don't Stop Believing is a really great single. I don't care what anybody says, you know, I mean, and Journey, Journey are the most reprehensible band, like, to come out of the Bay Area and that whole, you know, in the 80s, but, but that's a truly great single. I heard an interview on another podcast. We were talking about the history of the creationists, I think is the name of the show. Uh -huh. You were kind of yeah. talking about the history of Trouser Press. And one of the things you said in there that interested me was when, when you started Trouser Press, there was a consideration about like making it about bands that might play New York. There was a little bit uh -huh. of like, you weren't just acknowledging like the broad spectrum of music because you, you were trying to write something that was like transatlantic because of your sort of Anglophilic uh, pursuits. You were into a lot of British bands, but you were also trying to filter it through that idea of what might hit New York. It was a marketing strategy. You know, we were, we were selling the magazines on the street. And so we needed places to sell them where we thought they could be sold. And we simply looked to see who was playing that we liked. And we did articles about them and, and sold them outside the venue. I mean, that only lasted for uh, four issues, but but that was our original concept. So yeah, I mean, I mean, the first issue, you know, was was timed around the Rory Gallagher concert at the Academy of Music, um, and uh, the second one was about a Matahupa concert at the Eurus Theater. So yeah, you know, I mean, like that, that was our that that was our marketing strategy. But yeah, it, it wasn't really. I mean, it was just taking advantage of the fact that a lot of bands that we like played New York, you know, I mean, we go to shows all the time. Um, and it was convenient to, 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 to set that stuff up. But I mean, we would have, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have written about somebody we weren't interested in just because they were playing. It wasn't like that. And we also did this very weird thing, which was that we were intentionally trying not to be a New York local publication. Ergo, we never covered the New York bands until kind of late in the Bowery scene, like, you know, 76, 77. Whereas we could have, you know, I mean, I was going to shows, you know, by the Ramones and Blondie and Talking Heads in 75 in television. Um, but we weren't writing about them because we didn't want people to think that we were just focused on New York. And the Bowery scene, this is, this is something I try to explain to people, and it's really hard to convey incredibly. The Bowery scene, even if you're looking back on it now as like 20 bands that you absolutely adore, you know, that changed the sound of music. In 1975 and 1976, it was a little private club of like friends who went to the shows and saw the same bands over and over again. And none of us imagined that any of them would ever be famous outside of like downtown Manhattan. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like, you know, oh, the, it wasn't like, it wasn't Liverpool, you know, the cavern in 1963, you know, waiting for these bands to all get signed. None of them were going to get signed. You know, they were all our cool friends and, you know, and, and we, you know, everybody played in everybody else's band. We all went to see each other. And, you know, I had a band and it was like, you know, and it was it was not a thing. So, you know, people look back on that and go, like, oh, my God, you know, you must have been so, you know, like, you, how, how did you let that get by you? It's like we weren't letting anything get by us. We didn't imagine anybody outside of our friends would care about the mumps, you know, or the marbles or the planets or, you know, or, or, or you know, tough darts or, or make the bill because they were bands that no one had ever heard of. None of them had records out. 
And so we had this weird, you know, somewhat asked backwards idea that we shouldn't write about. And then eventually we did, you know, but like there's an exhibit on in the Museum of the City of New York right now about New York, New York culture, New York music culture. Um, and the only publication that they have to, to kind of document it is the New York rocker because the New York rocker was only writing about New York fans. So, you know, there you go. Yeah. I do. Uh, do you stand by that decision now that you were, weren't writing about those bands at the time? No, I mean, obviously it would have been, it would have been nice to have that stuff to look back on, but at the same time, you know, we couldn't see the point of telling people about bands that they couldn't hear. Makes sense. You know, I mean, I mean, those bands were literally invisible outside of, of Manhattan. <laughs> they didn't, they didn't tour. They didn't play any place. They didn't have records. They didn't have tapes. They didn't have, you know, magazines. I mean, we, you know, if we'd written about them, you know, our readers in London would have gone like, who the fuck is this? You know, why are you, why are you wasting? I mean, that, that was our opinion. I mean, you know, it would have been nice, you know, five years on to go like, oh, look, we were the first magazine to write about television. But we weren't, you know, because because we, we weren't a New York publication. Anyway. Right. You weren't taking it on as like a folk history project. Right. When you are part of a scene or even if you're just a known entity to a, a, a musician, uh, what's it like when when you feel compelled to write something negative about their work and, and, and then they actually react to you? Have you ever had that? <laughs> experience yeah i have i have I, I gave joan jett's first album a really shit review and i got a letter from her and a letter from kenny laguna her manager producer on the same day separate letters they were they didn't come together they were separate um hers was handwritten his was typed and uh they basically told me to go fuck my skull so <laughs> Did you keep those letters oh yeah they're they're framed in, in in my cellar and they're in my book um and then uh you know who wendy james is yes transition vamp Wendy James did an album of many years ago of Elvis Costello songs, which is mm-hmm. like kind of an atrocity. I mean, like they're they're sort of Elvis tossed off these songs in a weekend, and a couple of them are really good, but most of them are really kind of like just really tossed off. And uh, she recorded them, and she's such a bad singer that like I I, I slagged the, the record off and in in the Trousers Record Guide, which is now online, thanks to John. And um, <laughs> uh, um, like that was like. I wrote that 20 years ago, maybe, and, and like about a year ago, I got a, a, an email from her going like, you know, how dare you sort of thing. You know, like, why did you say that? And it's like, so I went back and listened to the record again. Pretty much as bad as I remember. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean that's, that, that, that's something I've been doing recently because I've been, you know, working on this memoir is kind of like rereading stuff that I wrote, you know, like 20, 30 years ago and thinking like, could I have been right about this? Or was I just like completely off base and then going back and listening to it, you know, and, and, and applying as much objectivity as I can to the re-experiencing of it, you know, not going like, oh, I'm just going to confirm what I knew, but just listening to it like with fresh ears and going, like, what, what is this? And I've been mostly okay with the stuff that I wrote. You know, I mean, a couple of times I've been, a couple of things I've, I've, I've had to admit were, were off base, but by and large, you know, the, the stuff that really struck me as crap then really struck me as crap. Now, I, it's funny, I, I just, was doing one this morning. Yeah, Pete Townsend had an album um, called The Iron Man. Yes. Um, and I, I found a review that I'd written in the Post in 1989 and uh, of the album and referred to a version that he did of um, Fire, the Arthur Brown song, which he'd actually played played, uh, played bass on, I think, and produced, of the original. But I referred to it as like a crappy disco-fied version. And I was like, I had no recollection of what it sounded like. So I just went back and listened to it. And it's like, it's really atrocious. <laughs> I mean, it's just, just, just like this, this sort of like horrible late 80s, you know, gated drums, you know, lindrum, you know, clanging, upbeat, you know, too much, you know, kitchen sink production job. It's just awful. Yeah. 
So at what point did uh, They Might Be Giants and their music cross your radar? You were definitely on the scene when they started popping up in the mid-80s. What did you think? So I, I went back and, and, and looked up the, the, the times I've seen them. So I, I, I've come up with 11 times that I've seen them play. Um, and the first time was at the Village Gate in March of 1987. And the funny thing about that show was that I was working... Uh, at Video Magazine, and a colleague from there came along. There was like three or four of us from Video Magazine went, and one of us, one of the other people, brought his brought a friend of his along, and the guy from one of the guys from Video and this woman who was a friend of a friend ended up getting married, and they're still married. They met at that at that they might be giant show at the Village Gate. Well, that's cool. They were heavily promoting that show on a often traded bootleg of um, them on WFMU. Like, uh-huh. I, I think it, it was probably a few weeks before that show, but they were like singing little jingles about how they were going to be at the Village Gate. And uh, yeah, March 7th. <laughs> Very cool that you were there. Yeah, so that, that was the first time I saw them. And I, I was knocked out. I mean, you know, they kind of they kind of hit all my pleasure buttons, you know. I mean, smart, funny, hyperkinetic. You know, obviously it, it, it reminded me a bit of the Bonzos, you know, because of the, you know, well, the horn for one thing and and also just the, you know, the silliness and the, you know, the, the element of humor in the in their work. When I interviewed them for the first time, which was in eighty eight, um, you know, they, they seemed like like friends of mine. I mean, they, you know, they they weren't, but I mean, they seemed like, like they were like my friends, you know, they were smart and educated and, you know, and witty and, and, you know, upbeat and, you know, creative. And, you know, th- those are the kinds of people that I liked. And, and so I was kind of, kind of immediately attracted to them as people, you know, and I, I mean, I've had that experience a bunch of times when I've interviewed artists that, you know, was w- the experience wasn't just kind of cut and dried. It wasn't just like, okay, thank you. You know, thank you. I, I've got my tape. I'll go away and write my article. It was more like, God, I really like these guys. I wish we could hang out, you know? <laughs> um, you know, that's happened to me a bunch of times. And, and certainly the Giants were one of those heirs of people. You know, and, and I had kind of the same experience a couple, you know, 10 years later with um, um, the Fountains of Wayne guys, you know, who are, you know, certainly analogous in a lot of ways to them. You know, I mean, super creative, you know, funny, weird, you know, two guys, you know, who've known each other for a long time. Um, you know, and, and I, I, I felt the same thing with them, you know, just like, you know, like uh, an affinity, you know, that like that, you know, if it was kind of funny because like being a music journalist, you know, got the entree to people, but, you know, it didn't make me friends with them, you know, and I, I definitely felt that at times of like wishing that there was kind of like a, a route to become friends with people after you interview. Yes. I ran into one of the Johns, I think it was Flansburg somewhere like on the subway, like years later, and he like remembered me and that was nice, you know, kind of like. You know, we chatted and it was kind of like, okay, you know, I, I guess we're friendly, you know, and I, you know, I, I never, I never took any advantage of it. I mean, I haven't gone out of my way to, 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 to stay in touch with either of them, but, but, you know, I, I kind of feel like, you know, they're, you know, Brooklyn guys, I'm a Brooklyn guy, you know, it's like, what the hell? So, right. Well, I mean, it fit, it fits sometimes you think, well, they would like me if they hung out with me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you consistently followed their music in the intervening years? Yeah, up to a point. I mean, I, I, I haven't really listened to any of their records in the last, I don't know, 15 years or so. Um, just, you know, they just kind of got away from me, um, you know, but, um, 
you know, in the, in the beginning, it was kind of like they were scrappy, you know, kind of underdogs. You know, they were like these two silly guys, you know, doing the best they could with tapes and, you know, you know, dashing around the stage, changing instruments and putting on hats and things like that. I mean, it was silly, um, but, I, but I enjoyed it. And I thought, you know, they, they, were, they were so clearly creative and inventive and imaginative that, you know, I, I was very happy to be supportive of them because they, they were doing things that were unique. Um, and they were doing things clearly against the odds, you know, I mean, they weren't, they weren't well funded or well, you know, supported. They were just kind of like, you know, they were the kind of band that would like, you know, pull up, you know, in, in their car, you know, and pull out all their gear and, you know, run up to the stage and stop, you know, stow it on the side and then start playing, you know, they, they were very unslick in the beginning. And so, you know, I, I admired them for that. And, and I really enjoyed the music, the, the arc that I went through, which I went through with a zillion bands in those days was, you know, being a big supporter uh, and champion of independent music and then watching those bands get signed to major labels, you know, and then kind of sweating out the, what is this going to do to them? And I mean, in one of the pieces that I wrote, you know, it was kind of like, well, they might be giants seem to have survived the signing to a lecture very nicely. It doesn't seem to have bothered them, um, you know, because they didn't make a different kind of record, you know, but, but that was kind of my, that was my Nirvana take. And that was my, you know, um, take with a lot of bands that, you know, that signed to, you know, Soul Asylum, um, The Replacements. I mean, all those bands at some point or another, I wrote about, you know, their, the risk that they're taking by going to a major label, you know, and, and in some cases I was right. You know I mean? I, in some cases it didn't play out very well. I mean, I, you know, I mean, Soul Asylum had a huge hit record by signing to a major, well, to, to their second major label, but it kind of destroyed them, you know? So, you know, that wasn't so good for them. And, you know, the replacements, you know, made like maybe one good record on reprise. And then after that, it was kind of like downhill, but that had probably had nothing to do with the label. Um, you know, but, but they might be giants, you know, Electro is a very, very hip label in those days. And they just had no, they had a lot of support for artists. And I, you know, I, I can't think of any artist that went to Electra that, you know, made the, you know, the shitty record that you really hope they wouldn't make by, by signing to a major. Yeah. I actually had a chance to talk to uh, Sue Drew uh -huh. uh, for this podcast, the, 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 the woman who signed They Might Be Giants to Electra and, and to hear her tell it, that was very much sort of a mission statement uh, over there at that time, which, you know, just to hold themselves to that standard. Yeah. The guy who ran the company, Bob Krasnow, was a real music fan, and he knew everything about, you know, R&B, soul, jazz, rock, I mean, everything. He just was a music fanatic, so he could tell right away if something was the real deal or not. So, so yeah, it was, it was a challenge there, but that's what made it fun and exciting, because everything was worthwhile. You know, there are very few things that I thought, oh, can't believe someone's signing that here. You know, you were very proud of your signings and your colleagues' signings, and we all really supported each other there. Well, the interesting thing was when I was looking at this part of the, you know, the, the label's history, I realized that I think, I don't know if I would have noticed at the time because they did have a few of my favorite sort of, as I mentioned, kind of college rock, indie rock, whatever you want, postmodern rock, they called them that for a while. Um, that Those bands were, a few of those were on Electra. But the interesting thing about Electra was it wasn't like it was just one sound. I mean, Tracy Chapman, Queen, Metallica. Yeah, Queen was a long time Electra uh, on the roster for a long time. Metallica, Motley Crue. Oh, Anita Baker. I mean, we were in every genre 
But I think the cream of the crop in every genre, you right. know, whether it was alternative or R&B or, and then hip hop came in and we were doing great stuff there with Brand Nubian and just all sorts of uh, leaders of the new school, all sorts of great music at Electro. It was exciting. Well, I mean, that must have meant then anything that tickled your fancy could possibly, if it had that kind of real deal substance to it that you're talking about, that you could bring it there, not based on, oh, this is like these other 10 bands that are successful, or, oh, this is like what we already have on the label, but this is another new flavor that we can, you know, bring into our world. Like, it's a it's a two-way street then, because it's like an integrity thing for a label to have a certain band on the label, but it's also obviously been great for, for some of these bands. You know, that, that takes a lot, of, a lot of magic in a way <laughs> to make that happen. Oh, yeah. You don't want to ever be a follower. You want to be a leader, and, and musically speaking. And so, yeah, that definitely was the, the order of the day. You know, if it's different and credible and great, then yeah, bring it on. We don't want to be copycats. There were labels that did that, of course, just jumped on a bandwagon. Um, but yeah, not not there. So with that in mind, I mean, what were some of the bands that you brought in? Um, my understanding is you had actually been talking with They Might Be Giants when you were at Polygram, correct? And then kind of brought them over? Yeah, that's correct. I When I went to Polygram in 86 in New York, uh, in Peter had a stack of records in his office that he had yet to listen to. They were just sent to him. And one was very striking to me because the artwork was just fantastic. And it was the first They Might Be Giants album. And so I started listening to it and I became extremely enamored of this music, this smarty pants, you know, alternative rock. And it was just, it just hit me, you know, like this is everything I love uh, in an artist. So I started going to see them live and they played a lot of gigs. I mean, and in those days you had that, time to actually see bands many times before you had to make a commitment to sign them. And um, I recall that there was really only one other A&R person at the majors interested in They Might Be Giants. And they had been signed to an indie label called Bar None that was in New Jersey. And um, so my, this guy and I would see each other at all these gigs. Um, we became really good friends. And in fact, we're still very, very good friends. And, um, you know, it, I got very close to signing them to Polygram. In fact, I think we even had an offer out when I got the job at Electra. And I went to the manager and, I, and the guys and I said, look, I'm going to be leaving Polygram, but I think you're going to be really happy where I'm going. So if you could just hang on, don't sign anything, give me a moment, and then we'll do it at the new place. And that's what happened. So that was the first thing I brought to Electra. And um, when we, they had, so in the meantime, they had that original record, and then they had the second album that they made, which was on Bar None. Yeah, Lincoln. Lincoln. And then the next record would be Flood which was the one that we were making at Electra and hiring Clive Langer and Alan Wynn Stanley to produce some tracks and Alan to mix the record. And, and it was Bob Krasnow just loved 
their cover version of Istanbul, not Constantinople. He just loved it. He called me into his office. And whenever you got called into his office, it was very nerve wracking because why on earth is the chairman asking to see me? And he just wanted to play it and tell me how much he loved it. And we sat there and he listened to it. And so, you know, that was my first signing to, to Electra. And, and uh, the Giants, you know, they did very well. They went to number one on the uh, college radio chart, CMJ. And they went to number one, Birdhouse in Your Soul in the UK, London, and, and the UK really took to the band. And they did a lot of touring over there. And um, so, yeah, it was the great first signing for me over there. Well, I'm curious about a couple things there that you mentioned. One is the bringing in of these pop producers, uh, Clive Langer and Alan Winstanley, who had a pretty tr good track record of, you know, very shiny pop records, but also artists like Madness and Elvis Costello, who, mm -hmm. if you knew their name, you knew like, oh, it's going to be, it's pop, but it's got this kind of, I don't know, there's an, there's something just great sounding about those records, but those aren't like corny pop acts, you know, no. those are bands that, that, that had a cool sound. So whose idea was it to pair them with them? Was that, was that sort of a label directive to say, we've got these guys in the door, we're going to now find someone who can give them that, that leg up? Or was there an attempt to kind of repeat the success they had had? I, I know Bill Krause was their producer on the first two albums and he kind of left the group, I think at that point, because he didn't want to just be their engineer. But right. I mean, what was that decision like to like, I mean, I guess I'm getting into kind of the nuts and bolts of you're an A&R person, you bring a band in the door. Obviously, you see something about them that's great, but you're also seeing something about them. Uh, tighten the screws here. Make a few suggestions there. The idea was to elevate them to the next the next place. Mm -hmm. And generally, that's what happens. You You look outside of the original inner circle to see who might be a good fit to take you to the next level. And we spoke with many different writers, uh, excuse me, many different producers at that time. Um, I would say um, all of them were in London. I remember making a trip to the UK and just meeting with different people and then having the guys meet with different people. And they were, you know, big fans of Clive and Allen and the work that they had previously done. Now, I would have liked for Clive and Allen to produce the entire album. And John and John were very set on, no, <laughs> we're producing the bulk of the album. They can do four songs. So we settled on that. And to be honest, that's fine, because generally, if you're going to release songs or singles, it's going to be at that three, four song limit. So so that's what we did. And um, I think they learned a lot working with Clive and Alan. They learned a lot about production, and um, that was invaluable to them. The next record after that, Alan mixed, but I don't think they produced it. So, you know, and that's another story. But yeah, the point is, you sign these people because they've got this talent, but you want to keep moving them up the chain and elevating them, musically speaking. And that's that's why you look outside for professionals, you know, who can help do that, but maintain the integrity of the artist. And I think Clive and Alan were masters at that. Most of their records have this feel, but especially the first few, this feeling that they were just like so serious about making a great record that it was like, let's make the best record, you know? And Flood has the feeling of an album where everybody involved was just like, let's just make the best 
it's got so many they're catchy they're deep they're full of like weird arrangement things it's this hybrid of live musicianship and the height of like midi and sampled stuff and it's just like there's a lot of how'd they do that and it must have been exciting to be like okay we're just giving them a little bit more space to do this thing it's the greatest feeling you can have when 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 you see something realized you know when you hear music like you're hoping it would sound and uh, when you've given people the resources to live up to their potential i think that's the other thing about signing to a major label i mean bar none was amazing in, in giving the guys the creative space but they didn't have the financial resources to to take them there and so that's what's exciting is when you can put all of this stuff in the pot for good and it works out, you know, and, and people are proud and you're right. I mean, the opening of that album tells you how meaningful that record is to the band and it announces to the world, this is, this is important and this is something we're really proud of. So you better pay attention. And uh, that I've never really, you know, heard anything like that before, you know, Right. It's because it's both hilarious and kind of ostentatious, but also yeah. kind of a kind of a a moment of also of real bravado. And then the next thing you hear is Birdhouse in Your Soul, which is like one of their immortal, yeah, like brilliant songs, you know. And then like, yeah, just a couple songs later, you've got Istanbul. It's weird how many people know them mostly for that album. This is absolutely not taking anything away from John and John, but they did have Clive and Alan producing Birdhouse. And I think that you know, that helped. I really do. And, and I listen, there's, I love these guys. They're amazing. It's like they're, they're in my life and I hope they always will be. But I do think that it does help sometimes to have some outside influence. But regardless, Birdhouse is just one of those songs. I mean, it's just an incredible song. Well, they joke about how their version was like a minute and a half and didn't repeat the <laughs> chorus or something like that. And that Langer and Winstanley were just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, leave it to the professionals. <laughs> They'll shine it up. Who can air in the alley by the light switch? Who watches over you? Make a little birdhouse in your soul not to put too So, but what was the mood like over at Hornblow? Uh, back behind the scenes at TMBG HQ when, when the Electra deal happened and then Flood was being made. Excitement, trepidation, just ennui. Their psychological orientation towards success and the music business was forged at a time when the fact, the idea that they would become successful was considered ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I mean, when, when, when the first album came out, there, and, you know, Don't Let's Start got some MTV airplay. Um, there was a little bit of major label interest at that point. But there was a lot of, you know, like, like younger A&R people would be interested. And then, you know, the higher ups would be like, what? No. <laughs> you know, accordion? What? No. You know? right. And, um, you know, that, that, that changed, you know, took a couple of years. But at the point that, that uh, Electra came around you had an A&R department that the, the higher ups were able to wrap their their brains around it in a way that other companies had not been able to and at that point they were 
their success, you know, I guess they, they had had more MTV success and more college radio success. Anna Eng did pretty well, so on. So after Lincoln, then the, the major label sniffing around had a little bit more, um, you know, seemed like more like a real thing was maybe like, you know, but it still seemed like, like it seemed unlikely to, to, to those of us working with them even. I mean, I wasn't working with them yet by the, until I, I didn't actually come to work for them or to, uh, Hornblow until after they were signed by, by Electra, but it was before Flood had come out. So I, I heard all the stories of, of what went on, you know, in the negotiations with different, because there were, they, they talked to Atlantic, at least at least one or two other majors uh, before deciding on, on, on going with, with Electra, I guess made you know made them. I don't know if it was the best financial offer or not, but it was the best. Like we'll let you do what you want to do. Offer uh, other. I think the other some of the other majors were like, well, yeah, we'll sign you, but you know you have to listen to what we say and make the record we want you to make. And you know they were not interested in doing that. Yeah, it really does seem like there was almost an improbable amount of goodwill on the part of Electra towards the band mm-hmm. at this time. Like they really thought that there was something fruitful in just in just letting this band be themselves but but on a larger scale. Right. And then it was like everyone's good intentions were rewarded because the album's a hit. Did you get a sense that things were ramping up? Birdhouse was a top 10 hit in the UK. Uh and, uh, like a real top 10 hit, you know, it went to number 6 on like the chart, not like the alternative chart or the college chart, but like the pop chart. And of course, the label was like, "Wow, this is great!" You know, number six, and they, you know, they never, they never achieved that high a number on a mainstream chart in any country ever again. Right. And we hadn't expected that to happen, but once it did happen, you know, there was at least strong hope, if not expectation, that maybe that could be repeated, or maybe they could, you know. We I don't think we ever thought they were going to be you know number number one with a bullet on American charts, but you know like, like that they could be at the top of the alternative charts or you know get on to to the the mainstream charts a bit. And so you know, well, from a point of view of growing a band and being patient and wanting a steady steady growth and you know long term fandom and so on, everything was great. But major labels aren't. Aren't, aren't so into that, you know, they're there. It's like, you know, sign a band, pump them up as big as you can right away. And if they don't, if it doesn't blow up in a good way, then, you know, okay, next, you know, <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, so, so there was, there was definitely was some disappointment from the record company that nothing off Apollo 18 did, what what birdhouse had done or istanbul which i don't know how where it charted but it definitely became a song that is associated with them well yeah that's a that's a that's a a, a, a sort of funny thing is that of course the a big part of istanbul being becoming such a big deal for them was the tiny tunes mm-hmm. um and uh we sort of talked them into allowing that to happen and the way it was presented to us and the way we presented it to them, and this this was an example of um, corporate synergy, you know, <laughs> because Tiny Tunes is, is Warner Brothers, which is Electra also and so on. So um, somebody at, you know, whatever division of Warner Brothers was making Tiny Tunes in L.A., you know, calls us up as or maybe probably called up Electra, who then call us up and say, you know, these people want to use They Might Be Giants music in these cartoons. And Flansburg was generally 
pretty famously opposed to stuff like that at that time. Yeah. So like, like we could imagine him very easily, you know, like they might be giants are not a cartoon band. We're not a kitty band. You know, we don't want to be, a, you know, that we're a rock band. Yeah. You know? And so the, but the way it was presented to us was that this was a revival of Looney Tunes, the classic great, you know, it's not just cartoons. It's, it's Bugs Bunny, you know, it's, and of course it's not, you know, <laughs> I mean, in a way it is, but tiny, t- tiny tunes is not Looney Tunes. No, it's not quite. I mean, it, it, it does still have a certain cultural cachet in that it, yeah. it was, it was doing something a little bit more fun and, and anarchic than other kids cartoons of its time, but definitely. That's true. Because I mean, I was a, I was in high school when it came on, and I was kind of an animation nerd, and so I appreciated that it was new new shorts with new characters. But in the back of my head, I was like, "This is still like the syndicated cartoon version of the Looney Tunes aesthetic." It right. didn't it didn't right. feel, like I could see how it's not the same thing. I mean, yeah, it's definitely not yeah. the same, especially if you're John Flansburg and you're worried about seeming like a goof uh, or something. Exactly. You know? Yeah. So, so when they saw it, they were kind of down, you know, they were like, this isn't what you told us it would be. You know? <laughs> and, um, but of course, you know, I, I, I've never asked them about it in any more recent years, but I'm guessing they've, they've come around to realizing that it was, was not a bad move. Well, you know, so many fans are into them now because of that. Yeah. And if you find out when they, like I first saw them on MTV, other people that might've been college radio, but for a lot of kids, it was being at the right age to come home and watch a cartoon and see this band. No, that's right. They weren't even sure that it was a band. It just seemed like an episode of the show that they then right. would later mm-hmm. find out that it was a real yeah. band. So yeah, no, I think it's responsible for for some some measurable. If if you could figure out how to measure it, you would find that it was a a, a not insignificant chunk of their fan base that started that way. You know, in a lot of these stories that I hear, it seems like Flansburg is is often the the voice of the aesthetics mm-hmm. for the project. Yeah. Is he just the most decisive, John? Yeah. Now, well, Linnell doesn't want to tell you what he's thinking a lot of times, so whereas Flansburg will often be only too happy to. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I think with between the two, within the unit of the two of them, Flansburg is the spokesperson, right? You know, I'm not sure. But I think a lot of the things like like Linnell would would be kind of like he could go either way, you know, and and he would let John make the decision because John cared, you know. Uh, I'm not that that's I'm sure that's not everything, but some things John was is more was always in those days at least more. Fo- John, I say John. <laughs> Hi, John. 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 Flansburg uh, was more focused on career than than Linnell was. I don't think though that unless Linnell said, I don't care, John, do what you know, you you decide, I don't think Flansburg would make a decision for him. You know, it was they 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 would have to agree for you know any major thing like that. Sitting way on the outside of it, it definitely seems like there's just an inherent balance to the way they the way they relate to each other and the project. Right. And I remember reading somewhere one of them said that they don't really socialize that much in between making records, and that kind of keeps the creative relationship fresh. Right. And maybe that has the added benefit of, of insulating against these different personalities clashing and, and the friction that could be caused by that if they were just around each other all the time. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that's more right in more recent decades than it was in the early days. But, but even then, I think that's true that just like you said, that they were, they were, they were, they were best friends and work partners, but they tempered the, the best friendness in a way that allowed it to not, you know, not fall on the rocks of uh, such things. Right. Um, 
yeah, no, it's 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 interesting. They're very different people, you know, very different kinds of, you know, their personalities are very different, but somehow it 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 works and and you know uh, melds into something that uh, that really works. And you think about other bands with two strong songwriters in them. It's pretty unusual to last that long. Yes, you know the Beatles. The Beatles couldn't do it. XTC couldn't do it, you know, or didn't anyway. Right, and even with XTC, uh, it was not n- nearly as evenly right. divided. Like they, they are a rare example. I'm sure there are other bands where, if you looked at who wrote the songs, maybe it's pretty evenly divided. But there's very few bands that have like two songwriters who write equal amounts of music. Like you have Andy Partridge, and then you have Colin Moulding, who does, who does, you know three or four songs on an album. And I'm not knocking his contributions at all, but there's just a sense that you have one songwriter who works faster than the other. And with They Might Be Giants, it almost seems like there's almost, uh, there, there might be some healthy competition between the two of them, but it always feels like, I mean, I would notice on some albums if it felt like one of them seemed more inspired than the other or something like that. But in general, it, there's a very, that they, they manage to keep it even. I even think they switched their names in the credits on like every other album so as to not, you know, as to confound <laughs> uh-huh. this idea of who is the main John. Yeah. But what you're saying about them being different people, I wonder if that made them a unit uh, that was uh, kind of unique to work with from the outside because it almost seems like they've made a decision between the two of them um, that, you know, they've already vetted in, right. in a management situation or, you know, logistical stuff. I, I wonder if that made them... Um, if that's made them kind of self-contained over the years, that that, that is such a tight unit. I, I think that, that, yes, I think that's true. Also, um, because they were started out in a, you know, in an era where what they were doing was seen as so unlikely and weird, you know, that that builds solidarity. Yeah. And I, I would even say that that solidarity extends to the, to the fan aspect in a way, because if you find then the the work made by these people interesting, then you're just kind of it's like a feedback loop of of support for these sort of outsider ideas or even just sort of a misfit mentality. Mm-hmm. It really struck a chord with me when when I first heard it, and I was sort of hooked. In fact, I was sort of an amateur street team for the band. I I, <laughs> I somehow got the hornblow number and would call it up and pester whoever answered uh-huh. with questions and try to get information about what was coming up. For the band, we might have spoken. I, I believe we did. Yeah, no, no. It, it, it was a, it was a totally different way of of how, how, you know to be a music fan meant doing a lot of stuff that now just like make wouldn't make any sense and and just doesn't work. But it was it was like both it was fun and in a way like it was sort of like it was it, it was like a, a I don't want to use the word torture too literally but you know like like it would drive you crazy You're like i really want to know what's going on with my <laughs> favorite band and i can't find out you know it's like you and and you know you're gonna buy every issue of rolling stone and whatever other magazines spin and so on and comb through them to find the you know like with a band like they might be giants you know there might be something about them in rock magazines every once in a while but yeah know. in the front you know in the front where there's like a sentence and the band names are all in bold like right. you would find that they were recording their new album or something like that and sometimes mm-hmm. it would mention the name and that would be like oh my god i can't believe i uh, new information you know so i do remember when um uh, you know, like just I, so I guess all I was saying was I, I don't think I was ever in my life because that was a point in my life where I'd just gone to college and I was really into this band and Apollo 18 was about to come out and it was like I don't think I've ever been more into a thing pop culturally than I was into that band at that point uh-huh. I was walking around like <laughs> proselytizing yeah, about it sure. and I wonder if that's a thing that they kind of appeal to like it is a kind of, I've heard people say this about them that that like you if you like them you love them I think so 
No, I, I, I totally, you know, not so much with the Giants because, you know, I knew them personally and I was a bit older at that point, but I can totally identify with what you were saying about, you know, pouring over liner notes and seeing, oh, this guy was on this other band's record and, oh, you know, that's all that kind of stuff. Um, well, I mean, at that point, being a kid in, in Birmingham, Alabama, too, Brooklyn had this kind of mythological quality to it. So that was another aspect of it. They, they, they seemed like... I've always said they seem like my cool older brothers or uncles or something like just you know people who were like hip to a scene or something mm-hmm. and I think that there was that feel that they um uh and again which is why it was so surprising to me later when they became so associated with people would talk about nerd rock and right. and that kind of stuff where I was like no to me they always seemed much more like like I mean, I went to art school and I had a lot of art friends in college. It's like they seemed more like art, art, art weirdos to me than than like, uh, you know, nerd rock, whatever that is. But I, right. I, I also think well, they've they've at different times in their life. They've they've kicked against or embraced the idea of kind of the nerd culture. But I think people tend to overstate it w- with regards to them. Maybe their mm-hmm. fandom is is pretty nerdy, but I think they kind of bristle at that because they don't even feel that nerdy. They feel more. Yeah like art guys, but yeah, no, I think that's right. Though I think, you know, that's people who aren't either of those things do see those as sort of, you know, similar or, or maybe just different aspects of the same thing, you know, they're they're not art, art, art people and nerds are both not regular. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, well that, that reminds me of the dawn of the, of the web era for the world, but particularly for, for, you know, rock and they might be giants. I had I had uh, had moved back to California, and um, was no longer working at Hornblow. In, in uh, the you know what year would this have been? About ninety four, probably it was. I proposed to them that we create a website, and um, maybe it was even ninety three. People didn't know what a website was, including like John and John. Maybe they had read articles about it but like like you know people didn't have computers that had internet connections for the most part or if you did that meant you had a dial up connection to you know something with a with a text interface it didn't mean you know what it means now right. and so i i had i put i mean the first task of get was getting trying to get them interested in making a website was explaining what a website is and i leaned very hard on the on saying you know look you guys are the right band to be the first band with your own website because your fan base is nerdy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, and maybe, maybe I, maybe I leaned on that too hard, and they said, "Oh, we don't want to do that because we're because we're not nerdy, we're arty." Um, but I actually had to arrange for them. I, I found a guy. I have no idea who what his name is anymore at this point, but who was a Giants fan, who I think I found through the 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 TMBG email list, uh, which was was run out of SUNY Stony Brook by some fans there. Uh, I found a guy who, uh, or maybe it was through the Alt Music TMBG Usenet group. You know, so, something like that. I found right. a guy who worked at um, a branch of Columbia University that's a, a, a geological observatory that's uh, outside the city, quite near where Hornblow's offices are uh, in Palisades, New York, or where Hornblow's offices were in those days. And so I, I got this guy who had, you know, a computer with an actual internet connection and a web browser to host John and John uh, to come see. And I created, you know, like a, a page or two of a, a, a 
a, a, a demo of what a website for them might, might be. And they went and looked at it and they thought it was cool. Sort of, you know, was their reaction, but like they couldn't wrap their brain around the idea of spending money on, on having something like that created. Now a year or a year or maybe a year and a half later, the whole world was was suddenly going. Oh, there's this new thing called the World Wide Web, and then then they did say, "Oh, Bo, you want to help us make a website?" And I did, I did early work on what became TMBG.com. <laughs> <laughs> Shifting gears just a little bit, I do want to talk about your role as concerns the the live side of They Might Be Giants. I mean, in, in your duties at Hornblow, I'm sure there was a lot of touring stuff to deal with, but I know you played an active role in the, the planning and logistics of at least a couple tours. And um, I guess I find that interesting because it's one of the things about this band that might slip past people. Um, these These are very extroverted guys in the sense of they seem to thrive on playing their music for as many people as possible. And they've always been road warriors. They're not like socially awkward wallflowers. Well, you know, they always wanted to tour in the, you know, uh, when I first met them was when they first came to San Francisco in, I want to say 86, probably. I don't know, somewhere in the mid, you know, around that time. Um, and in those days, touring was them and Bill Krauss and some of the time a roadie. Um, and uh, Bill acted as tour manager, sound man. And when they didn't have another roadie, he was the roadie, too. You know, or and even when they did have another roadie, he was, had, you know, yeah, he had to help, you know, carry the amps and whatever. Um at the point I came to work at Hornblow, like I said, they had they had been signed by Electra, so we were preparing to do the first, you know, sort of real tours with with tour support money behind them. Uh in those days, you know, the way the economics of the music business worked entirely almost backwards from how it works now, is that, you know, your your record company would dump a bunch of cash, recoupable cash on you to, to go tour at a loss at, in order to sell records. And, you know, as, as, as you know, now people make no money from records and hope to make money on tour. So um, before they did any, like, you know, like I say, like real rock touring with, with money behind it, I, I actually tour managed on the handful of dates they did uh, prior to Flood coming out but after flood had been made and then um at at the point that they went out to really tour for flood uh was when when you know they and we decided they had you know they needed they needed a professional tour manager they needed they needed a couple of roadies you know we needed to up our game and and do it you know in a more professional manner so that they could just you know concentrate on on being being rock stars were there any uh unique challenges from those days that stand out in your mind one thing that that people might not know that's that's interesting is that you know they were very uh, often very concerned about who would be opening for them when you know perhaps having you know they never liked being being a, a, a support act themselves for understandable reasons it's not that much fun being a support act um, but so. Um, you know that was often like a, like something we would have to negotiate with them. The booking agent would say, "Hey, why don't you take X 
on you know not not x but x um, <laughs> x the unknown not x the band you know on tour as your support act and we'd say yeah that sounds good and we'd go to john and john and say you know how about you take these people as on tour and they'd be you know no no we, we, we don't want those people they their their preference was for a solo artist for to uh to be to be the opening they didn't you know they didn't want to come on after a live band particularly before they had a band but even afterwards they didn't want to come on after a band and you know uh have to compete with that i guess um not that once they had a band i think they they were would have been well able to compete with it but um but it's you know it's just logistically easier to have an opening act to be something something small and simple um so sometimes they would you know say we want to bring such and such uh band more often it was it was us at hornblow or the record company you know sort of suggesting things and and we often had to you know come up with a, a second or third suggestion before we they would we would get something that they would agree to you know it's kind of interesting because i do think it's an odd band to pick an opener for it because is. and because I, I remember being at shows and i would even say feeling like the crowds were rude mm-hmm. to the openers yeah and thinking like do these fans not come to other shows and know that you don't act this way at a show well, that you're like I mean I'm I mean I've been at shows where the openers get treated poorly but I'm just saying in yeah. general you go to see a band and it's like I think what it is though is that they have such a specific sound that it's hard to find something that fits in with them that doesn't kind of detract it is. or or deviate in some weird way and I think the crowds would often be very unaccepting of what would normally be just a fine opener or maybe a little mm-hmm. every now and then you'd see something that even I would feel like well this is a weird band to sit through before they might be giants yeah. but 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 I also understood and especially having been in bands um you know, I totally understand the plight of the opener. It's like you, you know that they're not there to see you, and you just may turn them over to your side. You just might, but the odds of doing that are actually kind of slim. The yeah. bigger the band that you're opening for is, that's true. It would seem to be a great shot, but it's actually the bigger the band is, it's not a great shot. Being the the people that are there to see the thing, and you're not the thing. Right. <laughs> you know, no, that's no, that's right. In 1992, they would start touring with a live band. Um, from the inside, did you witness any growing pains around that? What was there like a conscious attempt to kind of meet audiences halfway and and throw off this impression that this was kind of weird music made for weird people? Well, well in the in in those early days, Flansburg in particular, you know, he, he he would always say, you know, we are a rock band, you know, like and I I before they had a band he wanted you know he was sort of you know demanding or wanting to demand that people take them seriously as a rock band at some point i think he had a revelation that if he wanted people to take them seriously as a rock band they had to get a band that you know like like wait we you know no bass no drums it's people just won't go or some people will but a lot of people will just never take that seriously as rock with a capital r you know Mm -hmm. um and uh yeah there's you know there's a whole sort of um you know the macho side of rock you know (laughs) that that you know you would you wouldn't think that a band like they might be giants would have any aspirations to in a way or we didn't we we sort of didn't initially but 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 you know they kind of did you know not not that they not like they turned themselves into Bon Jovi or Metallica, but, you know, they, 
they they wanted to do the big rock thing yeah. in their own way and and they you know they they did we we were a little blown away when when they came to us and said we being Jamie and I and the other people that worked at Hornblow uh when they came to us and said yeah we're we're going to put a band together I and mean, we were like oh yeah good idea but we were surprised yeah the 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 original touring band Unlike the, the 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 band of Dan's and the more you know the more recent sorts uh, uh, you know backing bands are were you know are theirs in a way that that uh, that that original band couldn't be. Kurt Hoffman was their was their buddy and was in another band that we managed, the Ordinaires. Yeah, I also love Band of Weeds, his sort of side project from that. Yeah, but yeah, and then Tony Maimone, who's you know like just I mean, kind of almost a legendary bassist, at least in some. Some area, some parts of the rock world, yes, was was great, but he wasn't. You know, he wasn't going to be. They might be giants bassist for the rest of his life. And Jonathan Feinberg on drums, and and he only drummed with the band for that first Apollo eighteen tour. Um, and he's a brilliant musician. Yeah, so it was a you know it was just sort of a different thing. Well, there is one more thing I want to talk to you about before we sort of leave the Apollo eighteen era behind, and that would be one of my favorite bits of band lore because it's just sort of a thought experiment almost to, to ponder what might have been and that is the fact that it was a possibility or at least it was being set up by the powers that be to be a possibility that elvis costello could have produced apollo 18 oh, I just okay so uh in the summer of 1990 after uh, on the flood tour um I was with the Giants in in the UK. Um, actually, I was tour managing for the Ordinaires, who were opening for them. And that after I've just been saying how they hated to have big bands or full bands open for them because they were their buddies, they were willing to have the Ordinaires to let the Ordinaires open for them, and also because Jamie and I pleaded and pleaded with them to do it because we also managed the Ordinaires. And uh, <laughs> it feels like a good match somehow because it's going to be very, it's going to be interesting and maybe appeal to the same crowd. Except the thing is, this was after they had. Just had that number six hit with uh with birdhouse in your soul oh right people are there to hear birdhouse in your soul and and the ordinaries are are, are face it are a tough sell to rock audiences you know uh north right. of 14th street or east of the east river <laughs> or west of the hudson river <laughs> anyway because i worked with both bands although i was there officially as the ordinaries tour manager i was you know doing stuff for the giants as well and the biggest show of the tour was at the Town and Country Club in London. I was, you know, running around, running various errands of, of whatever sort one does, running between back, backstage and the, the merch booth or something. And I'm coming down the stairs from the, from the backstage area, and I see a really pretty woman standing next to a guy with glasses and kind of wild hair and a beard. I kind of do a double take. <laughs> they're standing right by the, you know, they're, stand, they're standing in front of the, 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 the rope that's saying you can't go backstage. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wait a minute, that's Elvis Costello, <laughs> you know, in my head. Right. And then, you know, I sort of stop and then he speaks to me and says, you know, um, I'm here. I'd like to, you know, I'd like to talk to, to, to they might be giants. <laughs> oh, wow. You know? And, and I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. You know, great you know like hold on you know and so i turn around and run back upstairs 
and and uh, I tell tell John and John, you know, Elvis Costello is here and he wants to talk to you guys. There, A and R person was a woman named Sue Drew. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was I don't know VP or or assistant VP or something of A and R at Electra in those days, and she was she had flown over to London for the for the show, um, and. After I brought Elvis upstairs and he was in the dressing room talking to John and John, she came in and, you know, they're talking. There's a whole bunch of people sitting in the dressing room doing dressing room stuff. And she comes over to me and she says, Bo, who's that hippie talking to plants? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you remember that. This is around the same time Elvis Costello appeared on the cover of Musician Magazine with Jerry Garcia. And, and had yes, that, no, right, it's, um, I'm, I'm yeah. picturing, um, yeah. you know, it's actually the album that he put out in, I think, like, uh, I want to say it was 91, maybe, Mighty Like a Rose, where he basically had long hair and a yeah. beard. Yeah. He went through a little phase there where he definitely yeah. went into that, that look, <laughs> I, you know. Uh, which I love that album, so I kind of love that mm-hmm. phase of him. But I think it's funny to think about now, like that for Elvis Costello, that was a real change of heart to say I'm going to look like <laughs> I'm going to look like yeah, a hippie. No, I, yeah. Well, and that and that was still that was still an era where you know the 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 wounds of the punk versus classic rock or whatever war were still felt. You know, yeah, like like it was <laughs> that's true. Uh, you know, uh, there was a sense that you know you had to be on one side or the other of that divide. And I mean, I recognized him after looking again, but I had the same kind of uh, cognitive dissonance sort of that Sue had had was like, in your mind, Elvis Costello is the, the young guy with thick glasses and short hair, kind of copying a kind of Buddy Holly-ish look on the cover of My Aim is True. And, you know, <laughs> and uh, he wasn't that anymore. So somewhere in there, either Elvis Costello or his management or or Electra got the notion that there were people at Electra who were hoping to get Elvis to produce the next album. Yes, and it's like it's never been clear to me whether that was a case where Elvis Costello was actively pursuing bands to produce, and this was a band that he 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 thought would be fun to do, yeah. or if it was just a name on a list that he picked, or or what. Yeah, I, I I don't. I mean, I I do think he was you know he was not against the idea. He wanted to do it. I I don't know that you know whether it came. My guess would be it was something that record company people came up with. I mean, I was a huge fan of Elvis Costello, and I knew John and John were fans of Elvis Costello. And to me, it just seemed like the natural thing to do, to reach out to him to see if he might want to work with them. He had come to a gig of theirs in London. He said hi to them backstage. This was me, as the A&R person, just deciding I'm going to reach out to Elvis Costello. Who would ever say no to Elvis Costello? Um, 
And I did. And at the time, his manager was this guy, Jake Riviera, who was extremely difficult, uh, intense human. I feel like he's kind of legendary for being kind of a character, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He is that. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. Anyway, he he got it in front of Elvis and Elvis said, yes, I want to do it. And I was so excited. And I told John and John, Elvis Costello wants to produce your next record. And they absolutely were aghast and freaked out and said, no way. We couldn't, we don't want to be in a room with him. We couldn't do that. We don't want to do that. And I was really surprised. I mean, but I couldn't believe it. And this was the day of, I mean, we were sending FedEx letters back and forth to each other, you know, like stating our cases as to why we should, why we shouldn't. You didn't have emojis at your disposal back then to, to communicate. No, we had no emojis, no, no emails, nothing. Anyhow, needless to say, I had to go back to Jake Riviera and say, sorry, not happening. So that was probably one of the that was a big lesson for me, actually. Never assume. Just because somebody's a fan and and this would be like a marquee name, like, oh, my goodness. Like, so here we have Birdhouse in Your Soul, produced by Langer and Wynn Stanley, took them to this level. The next record, produced by Elvis Costello, in my mind, would have taken them yet up another level. But, you know, it was a big lesson for me. And... Um, I apologized and I continually apologized that I did that because I don't want to put them in an awkward position, which it seemed like, you know, they would be turning down. Elvis Costello is not uh, something you want to have to deal with. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, that didn't happen. I still wonder what would have, you know, what would have been like. It is one of the what ifs, I guess, for me as yeah. a fan of theirs too. And also for Elvis Costello, like the fact that he was up for it. I think years later, they played some dates with him at the Beacon Theater in New York. So clearly there was at least peace between the kingdoms, you know. But I oh, but yeah. I imagine for him, that would have been strange to be like, oh, I thought I was being, you know what I mean? And, and I, I feel for you because I've done that kind of thing before where you just get the order wrong. It's like, if I just asked this person first, I wouldn't have made this little mess for myself. Yeah. But instead oh. it's like, oh, now I've got two people who might be offended at me. Yeah. So you left Electra before they started releasing music with a live backing band, but was that something you had ever kind of pushed them towards? Was that something, I mean, you signed them as a duo, but did you see them as a full band in your mind? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think I felt that a live band would free them up in their, in their show, in their performance, in their, you know, communicating with each other and the audience. You know, when they first started, I mean, everything was on a, a tape and they just had to follow it exactly and you know uh, it's a little limiting so um but i loved that i loved that they were a duo that they were self-contained that it was just their thing and it was unlike anybody else but i do think the live band has added a lot Ira, your review for uh, Rolling Stone of Apollo 18 was a three and a half star review, and you were reasonably flattering towards the album, but you did single out fingertips as kind of a short attention span disaster. 
Um, you didn't like it. Um, and obviously, whether he directly read that review or not, this sentiment stuck with John Linnell oh. because in a 2015 interview with uh, Bearded.com, he told interviewer Eric Mertz, at the record release party for Apollo 18, I remember music writer Ira Robbins from Trouser Press expressing sincere, friendly disappointment with it. He had high hopes for us, and we had let him down with fingertips. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of funny to me. That's that's 23 years later. Uh, he still yeah. remembers that. Negative reviews always stick with artists way more than positive reviews. I mean, I've, I've had people quote things to me that I wrote 30 years ago that I had like no, I have no recollection of, but it's stuck in their craw all this time. You know, it's like. Why did you say that about this? I like, what? I have no idea. Yeah, it's like that was a long fucking time ago. Well, then I noticed on the trouserpress.com write-up of They Might Be Giants, which is written by you, Ira, um, and it goes up through the point where they were doing solo albums and stops there. So it, it seems to be sort of an updated write-up from from maybe your earlier reviews with with some additional material. But right. In that, you you seem to be speaking of uh, fingertips in a less pejorative sense. You 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 say twenty one discontinuous frag rock haikus, each given its own CD track, thereby allowing for ten gazillion random sort permutations. Yeah. So it seems like you may have softened on it just a little bit. <laughs> has it has it become more appealing over the years? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I mean, I listened to it the other day, and it, it, it's fun. I mean, for sure. You know, I mean, but. It's, you know, I, I found my draft of, the, of that review that I submitted to Rolling Stone, and uh, I included notes. I mean, Rolling Stone, you know, had, has pretty rigorous fact checkers. And a lot of times, you know, when I was writing for them, which I haven't done in a long time, um, I would kind of try to anticipate their questions so as to not have to get a phone call saying, you know, that I have to go scrambling looking for the evidence. And so I would kind of like offer the, the supporting evidence of things. So I've got a note here because um, in, in the original uh, review it says this jarring parade might appeal to restless channel surfers on cd the track can be shuffled into 51 quintillion variations none of which made sense of it to me but those with longer attention spans may deem it clutter and use the time for a refrigerator run and then in my notes i say a random selection of what i have a degree in electrical engineering and i took <laughs> a lot of calculus in college a random selection of 21 song segments would yield 21 factorial permutations or 21 parentheses first choice times 20 remaining possibilities for second choice parentheses times 19 third choice and so on. 21 factorial equals 51 quintillion 90. Uh, I'm not sure what the next one after quintillion is. But anyway, it's 51 comma 090 comma 942 comma 171 comma 709 comma 440 comma 000. And then I explain just to be a complete prick. A quintillion is a number followed by 15 zeros, a.k.a. a billion trillion. Hence the citation in the final paragraph. I should have expected no less from you. That's that's incredible. I actually went on from there. I said, two, obviously the parenthetical remark about trying to shuffle variations is an outright fiction. I only have a cassette of the album. But it would seem unlikely that my assertion would be contradicted in our lifetime. Aren't you the guy who hit me in the eye? Well, that certainly was a lot of Apollo 18 content, wasn't it, John? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But you know what? I saved room for more because there's there's two questions I have left for you, my friend. The first <laughs> one being, where do you stand on Apollo 18? I'm a huge fan of Apollo 18, uh, start to finish. I think it has some, you know, some songs I will absolutely never get tired of, no matter how many times I hear. Like, I palindrome I, my evil twin. Um, yeah, it's it's 
it, for me, the band's you know first four albums, those duo records, are incredibly special. Um, but really, you know, everything they made in the '80s, the '90s, it's it's untouchable. Yeah, I can't really disagree with anything you said. I mean, it's such a great album, and I think it gains currency with me as time goes along because it's the last of its kind. Yeah. Because it's the last, you know, MIDI duo, two guys on a drum machine kind of sounding record. Um, and that actually brings me to my final question, which is just what are your feelings about the duo sound versus the live band sound? Do you think the duo sound was just a, that was a necessity and that as soon as they could drop it, that's a good thing for them creatively? Or do you think that there's something unique and special about those arrangements that no matter how great a band is, it can never really, uh, you know, replicate them? I, I think the limitations that they were facing with early technology and the fact that they didn't have a band, well, you know, I, I guess they chose not to have a band, but really a lot of creativity came out of, you know, having to make sounds with the hardware and equipment that they had. Uh, and I think there were choices made there in the arrangements and the songwriting and the production that, you know, no other place in time it would have come out sounding like that. And so I hold those records very dear, uh, you know, every last note, every last choice that went into them. Um, but, you know, I've had the pleasure of being able to see them perform some of those albums live. I've actually all all of the first four I've seen live, Pink, Lincoln, Flood and Apollo in entirety, which were all very special shows. And uh, they sound fantastic with a full band. Um, but I, you know, I look at it like uh, I'm, I'm hearing these lovely productions that I'm familiar with in my head performed live. And it's like a, a rocking tribute to it. But I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't touch the original albums, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So in summation, we think they might be Giants Rock. They rock. <laughs> well, now all that's left is to hear some favorite song picks from Bo and Ira, and then we can bring this home. Does that make sense, John? Is this the weirdest episode ever? I think it's going to come out perfect because uh, with all this great audio, there's no other way. <laughs> I like your attitude. I absolutely love both the first two albums, you know, probably more than, than anything else they've done, you know, and how much of that is just because that was what we heard first and we were all, we were all young and, and so on. But, but, but no, they're, they're great albums. There's also the whole, the fact that, you know, you've got your whole life to write your first album thing, uh, you know, but, but they're pretty, pretty amazingly prolific and able to churn out more and more stuff. That said, as, as is often the case, I think, you know, the stuff that shows up on, on the first album or two in, in many bands uh, careers is is often like you know the heights of their songwriting I, I i i think lincoln is probably my all-time favorite i say it and then every now and then i check on and see if i really still feel that way and i'm uh -huh. like yeah there's just something about it i think there's something about the sophomore album when it's a confident sophomore album by almost any band if you like that flavor right and like i like especially for me like i i saw them on mtv one day the don't let's start video months later i found the the, the, the debut in a record store mm -hmm. and like ran and asked but begged my mom oh mom give me some money like i just saw this i found this tape that i really want to get that band that name that stuck in my mind and what was funny was how much of the song i remembered note for note but that's just another nature of their kind of songwriting is yeah. they write earworms but like you know you, you don't even think about like another album or what else they might be doing at that point i didn't call the number on the phone <laughs> from that first album i later became a dial a song you know a daily caller but like from that first album it all felt so arcane and weird you know but and i didn't even 
know which John was which. And then when I was just in a record shop one day flipping through and I saw Lincoln, I I flipped out. It was like, they didn't, oh my God, they they did another, these, whoever these weirdos are, they did another one, you know? And and so I think there's something about knowing that you're that excited for something like this. The second dose can sometimes be your favorite um, of almost anything Mm -hmm. like that, where you're just like, you kind of know what's coming, but you don't know what's coming. When, when Lincoln was in the works, I was still living in, in, uh, California and, um, uh, but I was getting, getting, uh, you know, cassettes in the mail of, of demos and stuff. And I wish I could find it. I bet I have it somewhere cause I never throw anything out, but it, it's probably like deep in a box in my attic or something <laughs> that the tape I got that was, you know, was probably like sort of a three quarters finished demo, you know, for, for about half or two thirds of the songs on Lincoln. Oh, wow. Where your eyes don't go, part of you is hovering. It's a nightmare that you'll never be discovering. You're free to come and go, or talk like Curtis Blow, but there's a pair of eyes in back of your head. I would listen to it uh, on my Walkman, you know, on the bus on the way to work in the morning, and it just, you know, like burnt, burned into my brain, you know, and and of course. Knowing that I was hearing something that, you know, nobody else could hear yet gave it that, you know, that extra cachet that you're that when you that you get when you feel like, oh, I'm an insider on something cool. Yeah. Um, You know, also like what you were talking about, finding stuff in the in the record store. I mean. And this is, you know, the the typical old guy rap, but it's true. <laughs> Kid, the kids don't, they don't know. I mean, we have, I mean, it's great in a way. We live in the era of almost, you know, the, they used to talk about the universal jukebox. You know, we, we kind of live in the era of the universal jukebox. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I can I can frequently find things I want to hear that aren't on Spotify. But, you know, for the, for the most part, everything's on Spotify or if it's not, it's on YouTube, and you know, and it's and getting information about bands is easy. Finding out when a band has a, is a, has an album in the works and when it's going to come out, and it was you know it was so that we had to work so much to find those things out made them that much more d- delectable. I've always been a, a, a big fan of, of, of She's an Angel. That might be my single favorite They Might Be Giants song. When you're following an angel, does it mean you have to throw your body off a building? Somewhere the meeting on a pinhead calling you an angel, calling you the nicest thing. I love the song Absolutely Bill's Mood, partly because it is about Bill Krause and and, and, he, and he's an old friend and 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 I've, you know, experienced many of his moods <laughs> absolutely and, and partially, you know. But um newer stuff, you know, I, I they're a little too prolific for me to to, to com- keep as close track of everything as I probably would like to on some level you know so like 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 i there's i'm sure there are many gems that i just have not heard or or you know didn't catch catch on the one time i heard the album because a lot of the newer albums i just haven't listened to that much but um you know there's always there's almost always one song i'll hear i'll go like oh yeah that's 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 great um 
Uh, and these are not all that new anymore, but like I love Cyclops Rock, I think it's a great song. Mm-hmm. And Can't Keep Johnny Down. Yeah. Uh, uh, man, it's so loud in here. Again, like like I said, these aren't even all that new anymore, I guess. But <laughs> I know it's crazy how. The, but I sometimes think of those, like even the um, "Can't Keep Johnny Down," which is the most recent one you just mentioned. That mm-hmm. one is from maybe like eight years ago or something, maybe longer. Yeah. But it's like that still feels to me recent. And I think mm-hmm. it's just. I mean, it's crazy to me that I've been listening to them for as long as I have. Yeah, another song I'm super fond of. That this is even more recent. This is almost really recent. The communists have the music. Oh yeah. <laughs> such a great video too yeah so, um, um i mean that's something that clearly they they really like the fact that now they can you know if, if you're somebody who is a video artist or something like that if you get a call from they might be giants you you, you return their call you know that they can now go out and find people who you know whose work they think is is interesting or and and say hey want to make a video for us and 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 more often than not they'll say yeah i'd love to do that you get some get some great stuff that way. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's kind of genius. Um, and uh, and you know, as a as a small c sort of communist myself, yeah. you know, I'm not. I don't think I'm a Marxist, but um, but I'm definitely pretty left of center. Yeah. Uh, and so so I I relate to the idea of a, a f- communism. One of the things about it, it's rarely been all that fun. So finding finding a way to approach communism that's fun is 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 like I say, kind of brilliant. Right. I know you know one song that never has, and I think probably never will, you know, be get an official release. Maybe it's maybe it's on some fan thing. I don't know. But uh, we just go nuts at Christmas time, um, which that's like my favorite Christmas song, practically. No, it's know? terrific. It's it a, really is great. And we just go nuts at Christmas time. That's when everything falls apart. Uh, and my understanding is that uh, it's too painful that, that 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 it would be too painful to that that it has to do with with Linnell's parents' divorce, and uh, which is also I think um, covered in uh, they'll need a crane pretty pretty mm. um, you know that's a super sad song to me yeah that that like I said well if you could release they'll need a crane why can't you release we just go nuts at Christmas time but. For whatever reason, you know, he, he they, they can't. You know what? I think They'll Need a Crane is sublimated a little bit into a little bit more of like a straight romance narrative, whereas We Just Go Nuts at Christmas Time, it feels very much like dis- specifically a dysfunctional family. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, Around the no, holidays. I, I do. It is a very... Um, like I don't want to say like mature or confessional or something, but it's a dark, that's a dark a dark little song. But yeah, it's just so it's very pretty, and it was one of the first like um, 
remember when I started calling Dial a song, the songs that stand out to me are, you know, there's a few songs that just, I remember hearing those songs, and that was one of the first ones I heard over the phone line, mm-hmm. and it just was like, I couldn't believe I was hearing something that I liked that well, that that only existed <laughs> in that form. Yeah. yeah. Well, the only version I have is the, it's the you know, the, um, the WFMU uh, on the radio. Right. Uh, which I think is the Dial a song track. I think it is. But then, like, there's a live spoken word part over it where Flansburg's saying, I think it's live on the radio, the part where he's saying, you know, sit back in your car, close your eyes, drive very fast. Well, I think on the I think on the Dial-A-Song one, he says, uh, uh, please, if you're driving in your car, please right. put down the phone. Right. <laughs> Which in those days was like a non sequitur. No, no, you're right. You're right. The gag was only that you're hearing this on the phone. So yeah. if you're on the car, please put down the phone. Right. You didn't have a phone in your car unless you were Donald Trump. Hi, this is John of They Might Be Giants. If you're driving down the highway at 100 miles an hour with your head wagging out the window, we urge you, please, put down the phone. We just go nuts at Christmas time. That's when everything falls apart. We just go nuts at Christmas time. But it's another year before we're together. So, Ira, before we get to your song picks, um, is there anything else you wanted to say about They Might Be Giants in general? Yeah, the other thing I was going to mention was that, you know, we were always um, pretty impressed by their um, dial-a-song because at Trouser Press, uh, a few years earlier, we had a, um, a we, we sort of mm-hmm. had a similar idea. And we had taken a, uh, a POTS line um, and just put an answering machine on it and recorded a daily news brief oh cool like a rock and roll news brief and told you know and publicized the number and people can call in and hear like a two-minute news report um that we had um so it's kind of like the same sort of conveying information to a wide audience by telephone concept so i i always admired that they they did the same thing with music fans are still listening to cassette bootlegs made in the late 80s where people were holding a tape recorder up to the phone line because yeah. the, there's great music there that they've never, you know, because they write Absolutely. so many songs. They, they There's plenty that they've never done anything with, never revisited. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. So the first song on your list that you picked is from the first album, and this song is number three. There's only two songs in me, and I just wrote the third. Don't know where I got the inspiration or how I wrote the words. Spent my whole life... Uh, I was kind of amazed to think, I mean, it's, it has always struck me that here's a band that has gone on to write, as you say, 900 songs that announces on their first album, you know, obviously in a joking manner, that two songs is plenty, three songs is really pushing me on. And like, you know, I mean, the idea of inspiration, you know, obviously it's very meta, you know, thinking about the songwriting, singing about the songwriting process. Um, but I just thought, you know, like, to sing about my music's shallow grave, you know, it was just so, you know, hopeless. You know, and, and it was kind of like stumbling out of the starting blocks, right? But uh, like, not only stumbling out of the starting blocks, but promising to stumble out of the starting blocks. It's like, it's like right. tying your ankle to the starting block. You know, so I, th- I thought it was kind of amazing that way. And, and just, you know, I really, I just always enjoyed that song. But, but you know, it really struck me that, you know, it takes a huge mental leap to like announce that you're never going to write another song on your first album so i bought myself some damn pants and a silver guitar but i politely told the lady 
guess you'll still have to call me sir Cause I have to keep my self-respect I'll never be a star Since there's just two songs in me And this is number three I, I wonder if there was any actual anxiety about songwriting behind that. I wonder. I mean, you know, it's very hard to tell when they're serious, obviously, but you know, or, or when they're actually writing from personal experience as much as just imagining things. Since so much of their stuff is just completely imaginary, um, you know, I wonder if, if, if any, you know, if, if Flansburg was worried about being able to write more songs. You know, it's like who knows. They do have a later song called Stalk of Wheat that's kind of about writer's block. And I know Flansburg has written specifically about having writer's block and how to overcome it in recent years. Huh. Uh, so, yeah, it could come from a personal place. The thing is, as you're listening to it, though, you can see that there's, what, 16 more songs on that album. So yeah, you, yeah. You, you know somehow he's going to get through this. <laughs> What made Istanbul, not Constantinople, one of your favorites, Ira? I picked it very specifically because it's a, a cover version that sounds like an original. Mm -hmm. Istanbul was Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. Been a long time gone, Constantinople, now it's Turkish delight on a moonlit night. Every gal in Constantinople lives in Istanbul, not Constantinople. So if you've a date in Constantinople, she'll be waiting in Istanbul. Even old news. You know, it's like, I mean, I, I don't think I even realized this cover version for a number of years and when i reviewed the record i, I don't, didn't mention it in the cover version you know i mean um but it sounds exactly like something that they would come up with. i mean almost almost to a to a note because you know the, the geographical references you know the, the you know the didactic aspect of it you know the historical element of it you know the wordplay um you know the the, the the degree of knowledge that goes into the lyrics i mean it's not just you know oh you know th this used to be this now it's that it's like this whole intricate story about like well you know you have to ask the church even old new york was once new amsterdam why they changed it i can't say you just liked it better that way that that put me in mind very much bonzo's because bonzo's um, made a habit in their early records of recording cover versions of like 20s and 30s, you know, British pop songs that sounded like things that they would later go on to create. You know, I mean, they sound mm -hmm. absurd, you know, Dada-ish, you know, random, you know, completely nonsensical, um, bizarre wordplay and kind of very modern. And then you go back and there's this album, this is a really great album called Songs the Bonzos Taught Us, which is a collection of the originals of songs the Bonzos recorded. And like, oh, wow, it's absolutely brain splitting because you think like, you know, you just hear one song after the other that sounds like, oh, my God, that was like the 60s acid trip nut job stuff that the Bonzos were so good at, except it was <laughs> done by some completely straight, you know, vodi singer in 1927, you mm -hmm. know, and written by some some Jewish Tin Pan Alley writer, you know, in, in <laughs> Cleveland or whatever. You know, it's, it, it amazes me. So, you know, I, I, I it, that's why I picked Istanbul, because I. I I am amazed that they were able to find a song that so perfectly suited their creative style that they didn't create. I think a part of how they infused it with their own style so much is that, you know, they, they started playing it, putting it in their live repertoire a few years before Flood came out. I think we know they were playing it as early as 87, but it could be earlier. But when they, you know, John and John discussed bringing that song into the fold, they decided consciously not to listen to the original and to just cover it completely from memory. So, you know, 
it was distorted at that point through their heads, and I, I guess they remembered the lyrics of it. But uh, how did they know it in the first place? The Four Lads was that the version that was on yeah, Four yeah. Lads? Yeah, yeah. They, they uh, Flansburg had heard it growing up apparently, and Linnell was introduced to it in the early '80s. He was watching a program. Uh, let me see exactly what it was because I was reading about it recently. He was watching a TV special about music from the '50s, huh. and. Uh, okay. Yeah. By the 80s, there was a received idea. The 50s had been a rock and roll decade. But if you watch this show, this is Linnell's quote, that clearly was not the angle they were going for because there was no rock and roll involved. It was Patti Page, The Four Lads, stuff like that, popular adult music. So uh, I don't know, it's, it's stuck in Linnell's head at that point. It's, they're, they're, they, they got the lyrics right, though. They didn't, they didn't screw anything up. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, mean, I, went back, I went back and watched The Four Lads version because I, I never heard it, but... Uh... Yeah, it, it seems pretty accurate. It seems pretty intact. Yeah. Even some of the things that they they amp up the theatricality of that, like do 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 do, and the, ah, right. all that right. stuff is like very iconic. But there are hints of that in the Four Lads version too, where it's just mm. it's all about taking that kind of vocal arrangement and almost like going into this operatic place with it, which which again the the Johns I think did a lot of in those days of like singing in these big voices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um. Yeah, it, I'm surprised the Bonzos never did it. You know, it's funny, <laughs> but, you know, do, doing cover versions from memory is a risky process. Um, you know, uh, Joan, Joan Baez did um, The Night They Drove All Dixie Down um, and got all the words wrong. She had a, <laughs> a number one record with like completely mis- misunderstood lyrics, Oof. which is kind of a tragedy. Yeah, I, I wonder if I wonder if they had looked it up by the time they were putting it to record. But you know, to be fair, there's not that many lyrics. Right. The, uh, the, the repetition definitely helps. The it kind of has a campfire song quality to it in that way, in that it does seem like you could just infinitely go back around with it. You know what I mean? Because it, it is kind of around. Yeah. You do it as around, couldn't you? That'd be scary. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's also like it embraces this idea almost that they dispense with uh, that they don't. That they, in fact, I think they kind of bristled at the notion of like novelty music. But I've always sort of liked a lot of music that. And when you talk about the Bonzo Dog Band, they flirt with novelty music all the time to the point where I just say a lot of my favorite bands. It doesn't seem like that distinction matters that much. But this song is one that it just. I don't know. Everything about it feels like an unlikely like alternative radio smash. If you're still, if you're listening to the serious uh, radio, like satellite, you know, alternative radio station in between grunge, you'll hear Istanbul <laughs> sometimes. Uh, it's it's such a great unlikely thing. And it's got all of their, it's got a prominent accordion parts on it. This, you know, the drum machine, you can tell it's like a synthetic drum arrangement, but it's got some live drums or live drum samples mixed in. It's just got this very distinctive, unique sound to it that I do think, you know, every now and then you were talking about the Bonzos doing that, taking music kind of out of its time and place and and just giving it a new context. Every now and then a pop song is allowed to do that. Yeah, sure. Winchester Cathedral. Right. You know, I, I wonder if this was the song that kind of pointed them at, you know, sort of educational lyrics, mm-hmm. you know, because it's the first one, right, that they did where, you know, they really teaching teaching history. I think the sun you know? is a massive incandescent gas. They were playing around the same time, yeah. but it was okay, almost the true. same kind of thing of like, Another yeah, cover. Yeah, exactly. here's a cover yeah, of, was... a, of a kid's educational song that we knew from our childhood that we're now presenting to like an art rock crowd in some performance art space. You know, it's got right. a new context right. that way. Right. Your next pick is from Apollo 18, which we've talked about a lot, but the statue got me high. Now that was a single and I look back and I still find it. This is almost like an unlikely single to have happened, but it's such a, such an interesting pop song. It's, you know, it takes forward a lot of the stuff from like, Anna Ang and Don't Let Start, but it also has these very, very prominent horns. What what made you pick uh, Statue Got Me High? This is the one out of the out of the five that, that I just like. I mean, it mm-hmm. was just I was kind of looking for something that I thought would be fun to talk about and play and listen to. 
And, you know, I don't have any particular connection to it. I mean, I reviewed it, um, you know, and I, I described it as kind of a, a, a treatise on, on the, the impact of art. And as the screaming It kind of put me in mind with this Art Boot song called Modern Art. Um, uh, makes me want to run up, run run out, I think. Um, sort of the same thing. Which has a, I don't know if you know the band Art Group, but they, they, this is, there's this great spoken word part of that song where he goes, you know, I, you know, I, I, I took, took three steps and like threw myself at the painting or something like that. It's just, you know, very dramatic. I see a kiss by Matisse. That's my window of opportunity. I take five steps back. I put my head down and I run at it! Run now! Makes me want to run out! No, I, I mean, just, um, I just don't think, think this is, it's a, a good song off a good album, you know, and, and one that I'd written about and uh, just sort of felt right. I don't really have much to offer on the subject. <laughs> I, I see people occasionally think it's a drug song or a drug reference. And I know when when I was getting into the band and I was like 12, 13, my dad was kind of conscious of that. He, oh. I remember he saw the video for Purple Toupee and he was like, oh, they're one of those like psychedelic, which <laughs> pretty far <laughs> off. But uh, Linnell has said that this song is, you know, it's about having kind of an art experience like right. that. It's like literally about seeing a statue in a public place and your your head's exploding. <laughs> Also, the other thing that put me in mind is I'm doing a podcast interview next week for a, a show called um, That Record Got Me High. So mm. I, I thought maybe, maybe maybe I would I would prefigure that with this. What record are you talking about on there? Do you know? I am talking about the, the Bonzo's uh, Donut and Granny's Greenhouse. Oh, awesome. Great. Great choice. Perfect person for it. But funny thing, too, you mentioned about, uh, to, just to get back to the song we were talking about, you mentioned about the statue in the public place, uh, John. I think that's an interesting aspect because I do think it fits this interpretation of an art experience. But I like the idea that to Linnell, it's even more obtuse in a strange way because it's like he specifically used the word statue and not sculpture kind of pointedly, that he wanted it to be about someone who was looking at like a public work that that and having an unlikely artistic experience with like a statue of like an equestrian in a park or something like that. And I thought that was a, you know, that's a funny little wrinkle to the story that it's a guy who sort of, not only is he having, having this insane reaction, but it's just something that most people wouldn't even think they're supposed to stop and look at and, and you know, take in. Uh, but, you know, this also too, I feel like this was, because Birdhouse and Your Soul was such a hit and Flood was such a big hit and and uh, Istanbul was a big hit single. This was kind of like an heir apparent single in a way. Like when I remember when this video came out, it came out with a, with a, a certain amount of fanfare, like MTV boosting it and stuff. And that was maybe the tail end of them being kind of an MTV darling band back when the sort of college rock stuff they were, it was like the pre-alternative days. Grunge had not yet swept through. And so they yeah. were playing all these oddball bands I loved, Camper Van Beethoven, They Might Be Giants, Pixies, all that stuff. But like, this was a real attempt to create a single. And I think when you when you hear the song, it is a great rockin' song, but it is also such an odd song that I love the I love the idea that this was going to be the next big single, you know, or that the <laughs> label would be hoping for that. The nature of their work precludes them from writing anything that would be what any of us would imagine to be a regular single because they're never going to write a song about, you know, like, oh, I was on the beach and it was a beautiful day and, you know, it was great. The seagulls flew by, you know, none of those things are in their repertoire. So, you know, they couldn't possibly 
do anything that wouldn't be a weird thing. We got a little glimpse into Linnell's songwriting process. I think at the same time he was talking about uh, what choosing a statue over a sculpture, he mentioned that this was one of those melody first songs and the working title was uh, The Apple of My Eye instead of <laughs> Statue Got Me High. <laughs> but yeah, maybe it could have been a single about love. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's, it's more like The Apple of My Eye would be like a title that they would never in a hundred years use. So they, they could throw it out as a working title just, just for the sake of writing it on a cassette. It sounds like something they would scornfully write just as a, like they would, they would, they would laugh themselves silly having called it that. All right. Uh, ne- next, you um, you put on your list the sort of 60-ish sounding song, maybe a pastiche twisting off of Flood. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, the Farfisa sets the mood there. Um, I, I, I was thinking about it because it's, it's, it's such an interesting bit of meta songwriting because first line mentions the DBs, and the song is essentially a variation on the DBs amplifier. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about a woman who, you know, leaves and, you know, and fucks you up. Um, and like, you know, and it mentions, you know, sort of like in very negative terms, the idea of a breakup, right? You know, I mean, Amplifier is about a guy who kills himself because, you know, his girlfriend took everything except his amplifier, um, which is sort of like, I guess, the ultimate insult, right? It's like, take the guitar, but leave the amplifier. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, of course, this is a great song. Slowly I always enjoyed it when the Giants kind of like slid into a, a familiar form and just showed that they could do it, you know, without really any effort whatsoever. You know, I mean, I mean, it's it's as good a, a you know a, a, a '60s homage as anybody has made, you know, and it, it it just fit perfectly. You know, it's got tons of energy, and the lyrics are really bizarre, right? I mean, they're like kind of, you know, I mean, they're playing off this idea of twisting, right? Which is you know sounds like it's about the twist, but it's twisting in the wind. Yeah, <laughs> right. No, and then that and that creeps up on people. I've heard people who, in fact, I think you, John, it took you 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 knew the song for a while before you thought about what "Twisting in the Wind" meant. Whereas I think when I heard it, maybe that was just used to, that used to be a more a more commonly used phrase, or I had watched enough westerns or something. That, but when I heard the phrase "Twisted in the Wind," I knew what they were going for. But I love that the song, the name of the song, is so bland. If you first if, when it first comes on and you hear that sound, and the name of the song is "Twisting," it's like, what is this? Is it what kind of you know <laughs> mundane twisting song is this? But yes, I, I think those specific references to like the DBs and later in the song, the young fresh fellows has that same feel of dipping into these really dis- specific like homey details. Mm-hmm. Like there's definitely some some lovelorn songs that are kind of cloaked within these slightly more meta songs that they do, where you can tell there is a little bit of like they don't want to write a typical angry young man post breakup song, but they will cloak that in something, you know, a, tw- a song called Twisting that's a twist that sounds like a song you twist to, and you can feel the real hurt or the real bereftness or whatever coming through. I mean, one of the things that's, that's always been interesting about the Giants is that there's a lot of anger in their songs, you know, and 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 the the, the fact that they present them never in a way that musically registers anger you never hear aggression you know or violence i mean occasionally there's there's you know there's bits and pieces that are you know 
uh, jarring or loud or, or aggressive. But I mean, but but their songs, you, you would never play an album by the Giants for anybody and go like, so, so did you hear the anger in that record? It's like you never would. <laughs> but then you read the lyrics or listen to the lyrics. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, really kind of, you know, bitter and, and, and you know, nasty and kind of disconsolate, um, almost churlish in spots, you know, I mean, and it's fine. I mean, I, I love that stuff. I, right. it, it's not a negative, um, but it's it's just. It, it just runs, it's kind of like a vein that runs through their work. You know, I, I just think this this is one of those songs where it just really kind of hit, bursts the surface. Yeah. And this is another one that they were hoping would get some airplay as well. They um, they didn't go as far as releasing an actual commercial single, but they, they sent, uh, you know, some tapes and CDs to radio stations. It wasn't really getting the play they wanted. They were hoping to make a music video for it, which would have been uh, yet another off of Flood, but... Uh, it, yeah, it wasn't really getting picked up like they they had hoped. It got picked up by Pizza Hut in the UK, didn't it? Didn't that, is that <laughs> yeah, what happened? Yeah, I think like 15 years later, something like that. They <laughs> it was like a twisted crust pizza or yeah. something like oh, that. <laughs> and they didn't know about that until they saw it on television one day overseas. Yeah, that, that, that's like a, a clash having like a hit with the, "Should I Stay or Should I Go" when it was used as a Levi's jean jeans commercial. Well, that's something that that nowadays doesn't seem to exist, and I I don't begrudge bands making money, especially now that nobody buys albums and you know not everybody can tour the world. But especially that notion, like I think to them, that notion of like selling things to commercials, they they started doing it around like the two thousands. They started being a little bit more of a commercial band, and in fact, making music for commercials, like well, they, they did a bunch of Duncan's ads, you know. But that idea of selling out, I think, was really strong, and I know you hear stories about how cagey they were, particularly again Flansburg, about like them entering into to this space where they're licensing their songs to be used by somebody that it's, you know, where the control of how it's presented isn't in their hands, you know? So, yeah. so I think that, uh, I mean, I don't know how angry that pizza hut thing made them unless it was just, <laughs> they should have paid I don't us. think angry because I think yeah. they were making money. Well, that's what I'm saying. They, by that time yeah. they had done commercial music out the wazoo. Exactly. And I think now we sort of don't, begr- I don't know, that notion of selling out, I don't think quite has the same meaning. Growing up in Gen X, for me personally, authenticity that there were a lot of authenticity wonks walking around where it was like, you know, uh, now I don't know, people making a buck, I, 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 I judge it through that more than I do necessarily the idea that they've like tainted the music, but it is kind of hard to unhear it once you've seen a favorite song paired with a product. I think maybe also they, they, they felt a, a consideration for their fans. I mean, they had a pretty, they still do have a pretty you know devoted fan base. And I imagine that, you know, that it might've felt, you know, off the, you know, inappropriate to like sell this stuff, you know, yeah. like kind of a way, way of taking it away from the fans. Like you bought the records, but now we're going to put it on a, on a commercial, you know? So that may have, that may have entered into it a little bit. There's a classic, very New York early days example with They Might Be Giants, which is uh, Crazy Eddie asked if they could license Absolutely Bill's Mood because of I'm insane. <laughs> they thought it would pair well. And They Might Be Giants said no. And Crazy Eddie actually recorded a sound alike, which I, I don't know if anyone has heard it aside from the band, but this made the newspapers back then, a few local papers that the band threatened to sue. I think they ended up settling out of court. Oh, yeah, I would love to they hear the They cr- were not doing commercials back then. Yeah, Crazy Eddie did, did a lot of things fast and loose. Yeah. <laughs> That's why he was crazy. I kind of would like to hear his whatever version of Absolutely Bill's Mood that, you know, like I would love to know if that exists, but who knows? Somewhere on a VHS tape, it's there, but, you know. I think radio only, so somewhere on, oh, okay. a, on a portable cassette, maybe. Oh, maybe, yeah. Well, I'd love to hear it. The odds just got lower. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, you know, you've got one more pick on this list, and I think it's uh, not only is it a more recent song, but it also is like, I feel like kind of a... Uh, 
it became a real rallying cry for the band and for fans of the band uh, who, you know, like through this last year and a half or so, uh, Science is Real. It didn't feel like a controversial statement when they made it. What, what made you choose this one, Ira? Exactly for that reason, although I didn't know any of those things. I yeah. mean, I literally, I, I don't think I'd ever listened to that album before. I had it on iTunes and I just like was like looking to see what it, I was thinking about what songs to pick. And I was like, oh, I haven't heard this record. So I played it. Um, I didn't realize, I wasn't even completely aware that it was a kid's record. Um, and listening to Science is Real, there's nothing about it that makes you think it's for kids because, you know, there's there's 100 million adults in America who could desperately, you know, use the, the wisdom that it imparts. Science is real from the Big Bang to DNA. Science is real. It just, it just struck me as incredibly timely. And I look back, wow, this record from 2009. Like, if they recorded it last year, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, so, yeah, it just it just struck me that it, it's a very, it's it's amazing how politically, how political advocacy has changed. You know, and as you say, it's become controversial. You know, that this is a song that, you know, is saying something which, you know, I, I, I had a science education. It was never a concern of mine to worry about whether science was real or not. I mean, of course it's real, you know, and, and here's a here's a record that with the, the passage of, of Trump time, it's gone from being a simple kind of reaffir- reaffirmation of something to being like a very provocative argument against a completely stupid idea. Yeah. I mean, it, it went from being the song has gone from being like, hey, kids, science is real. You know, it's important. Like pro science, like like pro STEM. Yeah. Like, hey, science. Yeah. yeah. Right. And now it's like, you know, like it's now saying you're wrong if you think science is not real. Yeah. You know, it, it's really fighting back against the completely, you know, boneheaded, you know, impression that you know you don't have to believe in science because it's just just a theory. You know, I mean, the, the great line in there about like, you know, science is when you take a theory and kind of, you know, you try it out and it becomes a, you know, you prove it. I mean, like, yeah. that, that's that's the scientific method, and it's something that you know, 100 million Americans desperately need to be informed about. Around when this album came out, they started um, putting shirts out that said "Science is real," and they were. Um, it was a parody of that album cover, uh, John. You know, Satan is real. From, the Leuven Brothers. Satan I think? is real. Yeah, yeah. Leuven Brothers. Yeah. yeah. So they 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 put like cartoon John and John on the Satan is real <laughs> cover, and uh, even even recently they they put Science is Real on COVID masks, and I, they sold out almost immediately on the TMBG store. That's great. But a, a little a little backstory on 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 how this song was actually a little controversial when it came out. You know, not among they might be giants normal fans, but. Um, you know, they, they put out their first children's record, No, in 2002. Uh, it was pretty well received. And then Disney Sound approached them and, and said, you know, do you want to work on more educational kids albums on a Disney budget? And they said, yes, they, they did one about the ABCs, one about one, two, threes. And uh, there was a Grammy win in there and I think another Grammy nomination. And then this was the third album, Here Comes Science, the uh, third and final that they did with Disney. And when it came out and, and people heard this song and they heard specifically, I think the, the line that upset people was, um, uh, I like those stories about angels, unicorns, and elves. I like those stories as much as anybody else. 
Yeah. Suddenly there were like one star reviews on Amazon mm-hmm. from people who were like, I will not buy anymore. They might be Giants records. You know, they're saying that angels are not real. To me, that was the line that felt like, oh, that's like a weird little, you know, again, you just you just feel that little battle. Like, oh, they just they made a little bit of a statement there by seemingly not making much of a statement. But I think a lot of times their songs are so couched in character that you don't really know what they're saying. But this song really is just saying it. And I think that is I love that lyric. I've always thought that was like quietly bold to put that in. And it's sad that we're in a world where that's a bold statement. But there you go. Try and re-release uh, your racist friend now, and you have like half the Republican Party like cheering it on. It's like, what's wrong with your racist friend? I love my racist yeah. friend. <laughs> they, yeah, like, they'll they'll adopt the song and play it at rallies before someone points out, guys, this is not good. Right. Racist friend, racist friend. Well, I mean, that finishes up your list. I, I really like those picks. Uh, is there anything else about the band or about any of these songs that we're kind of missing as we as we wrap this up? No, no, I, I think I spilled everything I was ready to spill. Then this is where we do your plugs. Oh, um, well, Trasmerse.com, but um, I'm, I'm always trying to get people to read my memoir, um, which is available at Amazon. It's called Music in a Word, Volume 1. Uh, it's an ebook right now, uh, and I'm working on the second volume, which will be a paperback. And I have a novel on Amazon. I have two novels on Amazon as well. So promote, promote, promote. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs> And I want to thank our other guests, Bo Orloff and Sue Drew, for being on the show. You can follow Bo's music blog, where he posts a pretty eclectic playlist every couple of weeks, at wub-blog.wub-fur.us. That's w-u-b-blog.wub-fur.us. And keep your eyes peeled for that full-length Sue Drew interview, which is going to be an episode of Playing Records with John on the FYIZ podcast feed. So look for the name FYIZ wherever you look for podcasts. What about you, Euless? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Moving to the Sun. And if you want to follow me, go to Instagram or Twitter at Gianni W. G-I-A-N-N-I-D-U-B-Y-A. And last but not least, please send us your thoughts at this podcast at 9secreteps at gmail.com. That's the number 9, secreteps at gmail.com. And that's it. Well, Ira, thank you so much, man. This was so much fun. And again, having admired your writing forever, it was great to meet the man behind the behind the words. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been fantastic. Thank you, Ira. All right. Take care, you guys. Take care, man. Take care. Bye. Hey, Mr. DJ, I thought you said we had a deal. I thought you said you scratch my back and I'll scratch your record. And I thought you said we had a deal. Hey, Linnell. Hey, where have you been? I haven't seen you in about 20 years. Weren't you the guy in that band, They Might Be Giants, that I was in? No.